At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Uh, David Hunter Childers here. Very excited to spread the truth of ancient astronaut theory. David, get out of here. I haven't started the show yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's no problem at all. Uh, today's suck was voted into existence by Time Suck's mighty Patreon space lizards, which is so fitting because a particular translation of the writings of the ancient Sumerians by a man named Zechariah Sitchin, then reinterpreted by another man named David Icke, brought us the very concept of space lizards. Will today's show be a space lizard origin story? Kind of. Today's suck will take us way back before the common era to examine the first legitimate civilization on Earth known in Mesopotamia as the Sumerians. To explore the culture of the ancient Sumerians means we'll be celebrating some amazing human history first, things we now can't imagine living without, like the wheel, the first written language. This society came up with hundreds of concepts and systems we use today, everything from government taxes, land and sea vehicles, to literature, agriculture, and beer. Today's tale is an origin story tale, the origin of human civilization. And that origin story will also lead us to the origins of the now popular ancient aliens belief system. Did ancient astronauts give the Sumerians and other initial civilizations extraterrestrial assistance? Or are the ancient aliens ideas based on, well, total bullshit? We're going to meet a few prominent people and or wackadoodles who say, among many, many other things, that the ancient Sumerian people were given all their groundbreaking knowledge of civilization and complex systems by extraterrestrials thousands of years ago. The story goes that aliens came here from a rogue planet called Nib Nibiru. <laughs> uh, Nibiru that comes into our solar system every 3,600 years. And aliens living on this planet, the Anunnaki, apparently came here and mated with us and enslaved us and mined our gold to bring back to their planet and they did, you know, lots of other stuff. But did it actually happen? I'll share what we've learned. Today's Time Suck will combine a dig into history's first successful civilization with an investigation into the ancient astronaut theory. History, conspiracy, aliens, and more. All in this, so what really happened? Edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, possible space lizard, definite Nimrod disciple, the master sucker, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, praise Lucifina, good boy Bojangles, and hail Triple M. Couple quick announcements and then a lot to unpack today. Whew. Uh, Symphony of Insanity stand-up comedy tour starts next week. I'm coming for you, Cleveland. After a warm-up show in Spokane, uh, some shows in Cleveland sold out, then off to Texas, all those shows sold out, I think, now. Then to Portland, Oregon, where some shows uh, already sold out. And then same for Philly the following weekend. Uh, please check dancummins.tv for ticket links. Columbus, uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Spokane shows in October. Kansas City, Denver. A lot coming up. And I appreciate you uh, getting those tickets in advance. A lot of you who have already done so. Has not gone unnoticed. Uh, given over $14,000 this month, thanks in large part to our space lizards, to the August Bad Magic Productions charity, the Wildland 
Firefighter Foundation. We'll know the exact amount soon. Uh, Since 1999, the foundation has provided emergency support services to the families of firefighters seriously injured or killed in the line of duty and more. Families left behind, many with young children, often find themselves with few resources, and this foundation steps up to help. We are so proud to help them. Go to WFFoundation.org to learn more. Thank you, firefighters. Uh, Fucking Whipple tie-dye and 20-ounce insulated tumbler in the store right now at badmagicmerch.com. I'm tired of hearing about Whipple. I don't like tie-dyes. Shut the fuck up! If you're not willing to man up and drink some Coke, I mean Whipple, then you don't deserve a tumbler or a t-shirt. Put on a diaper. Drink from a binky, you fucking baby. Fuck you. Fuck your family. Drink Whipple. Now available in your mom's windpipe and your dad's ding-dong flavors. So, uh, there you go. Most aggressive product pitch so far, easily. Uh, now let's talk about something not as aggressive. Uh, the 2021 street team, uh, before I dig into today's tale. The last three rounds have been an absolute blast, but a lot has changed here at Bad Magic Productions since last round, so we're, we're changing our street team uh, to represent all three shows that we're cranking out every week. Time sucks, scared to death, is we dumb? And that means going bigger than before, including a bigger grand prize. Uh, we're talking about a $200 merch credit. Just for slapping some stickers around your neck of the woods, here's the details. At high noon Pacific time, Monday, August 16th, the stickers will go live at badmagicmerch.com. Stickers are free, but there will only be 500 sticker packs available. First come, first serve. Uh, Once they're gone, that's it. One sticker pack per person. Once you receive your stickers, all you have to do is slap them all over the place, snap a pic of where you, you know, stuck them. And then uh, post that picture on Instagram and Facebook using the hashtag, and this is important, Bad Magic Street Team, so we can find you. That's it. You know, winner will be picked at random Monday, October 18th. Uh, We'll be posting, reposting your posts uh, on our social media channels. So quick recap, Monday, August 16th, high noon Pacific time, free sticker packs, badmagicmerch.com, only 500 available. Once they're gone, they're gone. Slap those stickers on all the things, snap a pic, upload it to your socials, hashtag it, Bad Magic Street Team before October 18th. And then the random winner will get a $200 merch credit. And the goal is to have fun with this. Uh, please don't do anything, you know, uh, too stupid and <laughs> just, you know, completely wreck something at some small business or something. Uh, we just want this to, uh, you know, use this as a fun way to grow the Bad Magic community one sticker at a time. And that's it for announcements. And now it is Anunnaki O'Clock. Uh, sorry if I seem scattered in the in the cold open or announcements at all. I wrote those last uh, in my notes after spending <laughs> so much time on these notes. Man, I had to get my head around a lot of new info this week. I learned a ton this week and hope I can uh, share it all effectively with you. Much less straightforward story to tell this week than last week. No, no from birth to death or from birth to incarceration timeline. No poop hole loophole. You know, either for comedic purposes, which is a real bummer. Gosh dang. Maybe a little bit of poophole loophole, but not much. Um, a huge topic. When the Patreon spacers voted this topic into becoming a, a Monday show on the app, I knew I'd have my hands full. And uh, challenge accepted, melted my mind for a few days. But again, learned a lot I'm eager to share with you. So hail Nimrod for that. Uh, the ancient Sumerians lasted roughly from 4,500 BCE to 1900 BCE. Crazy to think how roughly 4,000 years ago, their entire civilization had completed its life cycle. 
would be pretty much impossible to cover 2,600 years of a civilization's history in a two to two and a half hour podcast, especially in a way that makes it interesting to uh, people who aren't just uh, necessarily hardcore ancient history nerds or hardcore ancient alien nerds. So not going to try and do that today. Think of today as an introduction to the ancient Sumerians. It's kind of a one-on-one course taught by a real foul-mouthed professor who kidnapped the real professor and snuck into their classroom. Uh, also, not going to spend all our time on ancient history because there's just so much fun wackadoodle and conspiratorial ancient Sumerian speculation to also explore. The Sumerians get the wackadoodles real riled up. I'm pretty sure that's why this topic won one of our topic votes. Yeah. Uh, David Hatcher Childress again. Uh, I would like to remind you that I'm one of the world's foremost ancient astronaut uh, proponents. A lot of my peers want to focus on how I dropped out of the University of Montana uh, before even completing my sophomore year while studying archaeology, uh, go Grizz, uh, to pursue my own interests. I'm a bit of a rogue archaeologist now, and, and there is strong evidence in my findings that the Sumerians were, were one of many ancient civilizations whose progress was shaped and guided by— uh, Hey, David? Uh, yeah. Uh, could you shut the fuck up and just get out of my office, please? We're not talking about that yet. Oh, yeah. No, that's—yeah, sure. No problem. Yeah, go Grizz. Okay, gonna, uh, gonna get into ancient aliens lore, uh, you know, towards the end of the episode. Gonna see uh, how valid their theories are or are not. Uh, I hope we cooked up a fun recipe this week, right? We got uh, history, conspiracy. We got some uh, extraterrestrial talk. Uh, why care about the ancient Sumerians at all? Well, because their written records are the oldest ever uncovered. The ancient Sumerians provide us with the best, earliest glimpse into the beginnings of humans shifting away from a hunter-gatherer society into a true civilization, which as a real curious person, I find pretty damn exciting. So even if you're not a history nerd, I hope you find this interesting. They were either the first or among the first on earth to live in a socially structured way similar to how we live today. Fun to look how we uh, at fun to look at how we meat sacks got onto the path of civilization that we're still on. So first off today, I'm going to start off uh, trying to illustrate just how important the existence of civilization is to our modern life. Uh, how much human life changed thanks to walled cities, you know, a written language, etc. Then I'll try and define the concept of civilization as best I can. You know, what shift exactly did the Sumerians make? Next, I'll briefly lay out why the ancient Sumerians stand out as arguably the most important of the world's first civilizations before diving into why the world's earliest great civilization arose where it did. Like why the Fertile Crescent of the Middle East as opposed to Sweden or Spain, Brazil, here in Idaho. We'll then go over a rough little timeline of their development. Then I'll look into what this civilization was about. What were their lives like? What did they eat? Who did they worship? Who were some of the most important rulers, et cetera? And then we'll go over some of their most important inventions slash contributions. And then we will examine some of their ancient writings, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, regarded as the earliest surviving piece of non-religious literature in the world. You can learn a lot about an ancient culture by the stories they wrote about themselves. And then examining that literature will lead us into the Anunnaki, a.k.a. Space Lizards, which leads us right into that ancient astronaut shit. So fuck yeah, bro. Who were the ancient Sumerians really? Illuminati. Ain't Alien-human hybrids. Satanic alien reptile people thingies. And then that'll be our show. Again, nice little mix of uh, history, conspiracy, and fun. So let's start off with the historical. Life, bevo- life before, excuse me, civilization. What an interesting thought, right? I mean, really imagine that. Imagine a world of no laws, no laws that are written down anyways, no law enforcement, 
no first responders, no, no, no responders. <laughs> Imagine a world of no shopping centers, no retail stores at all, no tech. Think of how dependent on tech we are. Get rid of it. We have no internet, no podcasts, no computers, no phones, no social media, no gaming systems, no TV, radio, nothing that requires electricity. No industry, no doctors, no permanent dwellings, no plumbers, no sanitation systems, no AC. Just a small tribe of other meat sacks who look a lot like you and uh, not a lot else. And they look a lot like you because most of them are probably at least, you know, somewhat closely related to you. Uh, you're all wearing furs or wearing nothing. You have some rudimentary stone tools, speak a rudimentary language, hunt deer with spears, fight off bears with spears, clean and fish with stone knives, picking berries as you can find them, digging up roots as you can find those, living off the land, no medicine if you get sick, other than whatever herbs, minerals, et cetera, you can find lying on the ground or harvest that might help you a bit with this or that, but definitely won't do fuck all for a broken bone or a bad infection. You have no way to fix a bad cavity other than ripping your rotten tooth out brutally cutting it out with that stone knife, hoping you don't bleed to death or die of infection. You're following herds of animals as they roam, always on the move, living with the seasons, trying not to freeze to death in the winter, trying not to dehydrate, die of exposure in the heat of the summer, living wild, living not much differently than the prey you hunt. This is how we meat sacks lived for hundreds of thousands of years, the overwhelming majority of our species history. The whole civilization thing, it's still pretty new to us. And we'd still be living like hunter-gatherers if it wasn't for some of our ancestors figuring out how to build civilizations that allowed for specialization and innovation. Thank God, right? Thank God we're not still living as hunter-gatherers. Fuck that shit. I love TV shows. I love a good book. Wouldn't even have books without civilization. I love AC, the internet. Uh, hard no thank you to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Uh, hunting and gathering is how the ancestors of our species lived to some degree with even more rudimentary tools and weapons for a few million years, going back to when our first bipedal ancestors showed up. Right before the earlier uh, early Homo sapiens hunter-gatherers, there was a, a whole bunch of other hunter-gatherers back when uh, you know the first primates were like, wait a second, if I can just use these uh, back two legs for walking and these front two legs for grabbing, I can have some hands instead of just feet. Sweet. From what we uh, you know, currently understand, evidence-wise, bipeds first showed up, human bipeds, uh, our ancestors around 4.4 million years ago. And then we slowly evolved towards what we are now or have been slowly evolving towards what we are now ever since. For so long, even small human advances took so long to achieve. We got smarter just little by little, real, real hard emphasis on little. Not advancing very quickly because we didn't have a good way for each generation to effectively build off of the knowledge of the previous generation. No written language makes it very hard to evolve, as you might imagine. The telephone game, not the best way to build out an orderly civilization, right? Hey, wait, uh, what did grandpa say again about that pyramid concept he came up with in his head? Did he say the big blocks go on the bottom or the top? Hey, hey what did he say about gravity? Hey, wait, what, what is gravity? What's a pyramid shape like again? Is it is it a bunch of rectangles or triangles? Hey, wait, what's a, what's a triangle? Fuck, if we only had written instructions for this or for anything at all. For most of our history, we meat sacks didn't have the time to develop a written language because we were pretty busy, constantly roaming from place to place, trying to keep ourselves fed, trying not to end up feeding some predator higher than us on the food chain. Back in our hunter-gatherer days, we were not the apex predators. And then bingo, bango, civilization is born. And things began to advance much more rapidly. And the pace at which things advance has just kept speeding up ever since because we're just getting better and better at sharing knowledge and building off the previous generations before us. 
You know, the Sumerians showed up, a few other similar civilizations showed up uh, right after them and things started speeding up. Uh, while there is more debate than there used to be, the Sumerians are still thought to be the world's first true civilization, probably. Let's quickly address the debate surrounding that uh, before moving forward. Well, for years, nearly all archaeologists and ancient civilization historians subscribe to a single cradle of civilization theory that human civilization arose from the Fertile Crescent, a crescent-shaped region in the Middle East, and then spread out to the rest of the world from there by influence. Most scholars now seem to believe that the Fertile Crescent, home to Mesopotamia, is actually one of six sites where human civilization emerged more or less independently thanks to similar environmental conditions. Two of the six spots are located in the Fertile Crescent. One is the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, Mesopotamia, home of the Sumerians. And then there's the Nile Valley, home of the ancient Egyptians. Uh, there's some who believe that the Tigris-Euphrates knowledge migrated over to Egypt. Others believe the two civilizations emerged, you know, pretty independently initially. Uh, there were also the North Indian River Plain, you know, the people there, the North China Plain, the Andean coast of South America, the Mesoamerican Gulf Coast of Central America. Those six sites gave rise to early Chinese, Indian, Olmec, Egyptian, Sumerian, and other ancient civilizations. And then there's some debate over which of these cradles produced the first major civilization, right? Did it maybe come from the Indus Valley over in India or from China? Uh, were people writing shit down and living in cities there slightly before the Sumerians started to urbanize? Maybe, but most academics still seem to think Mesopotamia holds a slight edge when it comes uh, to taking home the title of the world's oldest human civilization. And it seems that of the first few civilizations, none produced more early documented advancements than the Sumerians did. Before we talk about those advancements, what the hell even is a civilization exactly? The word has several definitions. They vary a bit from dictionary to dictionary, source to source. According to Merriam-Webster, a civilization is the stage of cultural development at which writing and the keeping of written records is attained. Okay, I uh, wish that definition was a little more robust. According to Google, a civilization is the stage of human social and cultural development and organization that is considered most advanced. Not real precise. Most advanced feels too subjective. According to National Geographic, a civilization is a complex human society that may have certain characteristics of cultural and technological development. Kind of vague. Certain characteristics leaves a lot to be desired for me. According to my normal go-to, dictionary.com, a civilization is a complex human society that may have certain characteristics of cultural and technological development. Even more vague. It may have certain characteristics. Let me down, dictionary.com. According to ancient astronaut believer, David Hatcher Childress, who I'm making way down the hallway for a little while longer, uh, civilization is uh, any group of people uh, to whom the Anunnaki or other ancient and descendant beings of light have bestowed celestial knowledge upon, uh, such as early Egyptians, who could not have possibly made their perfectly precise stone cuts uh, without extraterrestrial assistance. Actually, I'm not sure if that's exactly how Childress would define it, but I bet it's close. And again, we'll hear from him more later. I have no doubt. According to Wikipedia, civilization is a complex society that is characterized by urban development, social stratification, a form of government, and symbolic systems of communication, such as writing. Thank you, Wikipedia. Did not expect you to give what I consider to be the best definition. A civilization has some urban development, some city living. In the ancient world, very often a city describes an urban center of dense population and a certain pattern of buildings spreading out from a central religious complex, such as a temple. An ancient city is also generally defined as a large populated urban center of commerce and administration with a system of laws and usually regulated means of sanitation. 
And a civilization has at least one of these bad boys. Uh, also, someone's in charge. Someone's running shit, right? Uh, a council of someone's. They don't just make up the rules. They go along. Well, actually, sometimes they do. Actually, sometimes they, they kind of still do. But in a civilization, they write shit down. And at least some of the people, the nobles generally, can read that shit and have an idea of what's going on that doesn't 100% depend on keeping a close eye on the chief or the king and just reading what kind of mood that whimsical prick seems to be in that day. The ancient Sumerians had all this and more. How? Why? Why them? Were the people of Mesopotamia just smarter than all of the other ancient peoples? Were they genetically superior, right? Because that extraterrestrial assistance, some kind of master race. No, no such thing as a master race. Sorry, Hitler. According to a geographer, historian, author, and national fucking treasure, Jared Diamond, gotta love this dude. They mostly just lucked out. Not kidding. They were born in the right place at the right time with the right conditions. Over 15 years ago, I read one of Jared's books, the 1997 Pulitzer Prize winning gem, Guns, Germs, and Steel. And it remains a top 10 island book for me to this day. Cannot recommend this book strongly enough. Uh, best history book I've ever read. To be fair, I've not read a ton of history books, more of a horror novel guy, but still best I've ever read. This book attempts to explain why Eurasian and North African civilizations flourished first and then spawned other civilizations that conquered others. Why did the British, Spanish, and French colonize so much of the world and not some group of people from uh, Papua New Guinea or Argentina? When asked by Stefan Lovgren from National Geographic News, why over the past 10,000 years has the development of different societies proceeded at such different rates? Jared replied, location, location, location. All the interesting stuff like technology, writing, and empires requires a productive economy that is producing enough food to feed technological experts, bureaucrats, kings, and scribes. Hunter-gatherer societies don't produce enough food surpluses to support those extra people. And then when asked, where did the first farming societies appear? Jared said, where do you think, you dumb fuck, Mesopotamia? Did you seriously have me in for an interview? Not even bother to read my goddamn book? Fuck you, Stefan. Fuck National Geographic. Y'all can suck my Pulitzer Prize winning dick. Of course you didn't say that. Now he said, uh, when asked, where did the first farming societies appear? He said, the first farming as we as we know, as far as we know, there we go. Uh, <laughs> my nonsense fucking threw, my, threw myself off with it. Uh, appeared in the Middle East region known as the Fertile Crescent some 11,500 years ago and shortly thereafter in China. These places had the greatest variety of wild plants and animals suitable for domestication. Only a tiny fraction of wild plants and animals were both useful and possible to domesticate. Those few species were concentrated in a few areas of which the two with the greatest variety were the Fertile Crescent and in China. Right in the Fertile Crescent, they had pigs, sheep, goats, and more nearby, oxen, donkeys. They had wheat, barley, and more growing wild nearby. That was huge. If they didn't happen to live around those plants and animals, if they just happened to live, you know, like instead, if they were just around nothing but like raccoons and deer and onions, farming and ranching was not going to advance in the same way. Very hard to build a civilization if you're using deer to try and plow onion fields and you're raising raccoons instead of hogs for meat. Early Mesopotamians became the first uh, true farmers in the world, raising crops well over 10,000 years ago. People whose descendants would soon build massive temples in the world's first known written language, the Sumerians. And because they learned to write, they were able to keep records of what they did, and we can study those records today. The civilization the Sumerians created and the subsequent cultures of Mesopotamia it led to did arguably more to revolutionize the potential of human flourishing than perhaps any other culture in history. 
And it all started mostly due to location, location, location. Where you live, so important, always has been. Let's talk about this location. The story of the Sumerians is based on the people who settled in the southern lands of Mesopotamia, now modern-day Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. Well, Mesopotamia includes Turkey. That's not the southern part of Mesopotamia. Uh, but it is Turkey, Iraq, and Syria is, the, is Mesopotamia. Some people believe that somewhere in Mesopotamia was the real-life biblical Garden of Eden. Or for those with a more interpretive view of the Garden of Eden, uh, the real place that the symbolic garden was based on. The name Mesopotamia means land between the rivers, and Mesopotamia lay in between the two rivers of the Tigris River and Euphrates. This location crucial to the formation of the ancient Sumerians. If these early people had been based in the middle of a mountainous jungle full of vicious predators, their civilization does not happen. They were located between two big, fish-filled, slow-moving rivers, not laying at the bottom of some steep, rugged canyons, laying next to flat farmland that was not covered in hard-to-cut-down pine trees, right? Because that's important too. It was deserty enough to not be covered by a fuckload of big trees, but not so deserty that crops wouldn't grow. Easier thousands of years ago to build mud and sandstone brick houses than it would have been to, uh, you know, build log cabins out of ponderosas. Those rivers also provided drinking water, enough current to provide for irrigation, but not too much current that would make sailing upstream impossible and therefore make trade a lot harder. And due to all the arid land around them, these rivers attracted a shitload of wild game. Fuck yeah, bro. Right? Shooting fish in a barrel. Or more accurately, spearing pigs in a marsh. Uh, these rivers provided early people with lots of fish, wild game, water for gardening, all in an area with no hard winters. Location, location, location. These sons of bitches had not one awesome river, but two awesome rivers nearby. The Tigris runs for 1,850 kilometers approximately, roughly 1,150 miles. The Euphrates River runs for 2,800 kilometers or 1,740 miles. Second longest river in Western Asia behind the Nile. Two big rivers running kind of parallel to each other for a great distance. And in between them, lots of flat and historically fertile farmland that flooded nearly every spring. The soft, silty soil, especially when it was first farmed, was rich from millions of years of river deposits thanks to millions of years of spring floods. The soft, supple soil, easy to dig into, plow, seed, and harvest. And there was so much of it. The Tigris-Euphrates River Basin covers an area of some 35,600 square kilometers or 13,700 square miles. Two major rivers eventually combine into a single river known as Shat al-Arab that flows for about 120 miles through the lowlands of southern Mesopotamia. Large, marshy area, especially back when the whole area wasn't quite as arid as it is now. Southern end of Mesopotamia, where some of the Sumerians would live in the Mesopotamian Martians, most of them, was once the largest wetland system of all Mesopotamia, full of fish and wildlife, and so much water for irrigation, before idiotic dictator Saddam Hussein, in his infinite wisdom, diverted much of the flow of both the Tigris and Euphrates away from the marshes to punish some insurgents who were part of a Shia insurrection. That guy, he actually did that. He didn't give a shit about anyone but himself. Just fuck the environment. I'm not using those marshes. They're not helping me right now, so fuck them. Uh, before the selfish, moronic reign of Captain Fuckhead, back in the days of the Sumerians, the marshes were lush and full of life. The large river system that feeds them begins in the Armenian highlands of northeastern Turkey for the Euphrates and in the upper mountains of eastern Turkey in a place called Lake Hazar for the Tigris. Uh, both sites of Armenian execution, sadly, during the Armenian genocide. Anyway, this river system that begins in Turkey eventually dumps into the Persian Gulf. And today, the river system runs through Iraq, Syria, Turkey, as well as Iran and Kuwait. 
The high mountains in the upper watershed where the rivers begin receive a great deal more rain and snow than the lower watershed. Annual snowmelt from these mountains brings the spring floods and sustains permanent and seasonal marshes in the lowlands. What a, what a wonderful ecosystem. Mother Nature making things very nice over in Mesopotamia, especially lower Mesopotamia. These rivers brought food, transportation, trade, agricultural potential, even protection from enemies in the form of natural borders for the Sumerians. Uh, the rivers brought life from the mountains to form an oasis surrounded by a desert and the desert river combo, you know, you know, just really helped them be protected for a long time. Very hard to advance a large army across the desert and then have it cross a big ass river. All right. Now that we understand how location played a vital role into the uh, Fertile Crescent being the place where human civilization likely kicked off first, let's look at a brief timeline of the region. Not going to hit the timeline button because these dates are a little fuzzy and, uh, and we won't stay here too long. By roughly 14,000 BCE, people in the Mesopotamian region were living in small settlements with circular houses. Roughly 10,000 years ago, all the dates here, you know, a bit rough. Uh, after devoting a thousand or two, you know, years to figuring out how to farm, one generation sometimes learning a little bit from the previous ones, villages started popping up across Mesopotamia. Ancestors of the Sumerians? Uh, perhaps, perhaps not. They might have came from outside the area. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, the people who lived in the region before the Sumerians raised animals, grew grains, even as they continued to hunt and gather. Over time, these villages expanded and their people became increasingly dependent on farming. They were doing a little bit less hunting and gathering, a little more sticking around in one place. They learned how to grow wheat. Uh, the main crop of the ancient Mesopotam Mesopotamian farmers was barley, which grew easily and abundantly in the fertile soil. From barley, the people made both bread and beer, which became staples of their diet. They also ate legumes, including uh, lentils, chickpeas, beans, onions, garlic, leek, uh, melons, eggplants, turnips, lettuce, cucumbers, apples, grapes, plums, figs, pears, dates, pomegranates, apricots, pistachios, and a variety of herbs and spices, all grown and eaten in this valley by the Mesopotamians. They had a lot to choose from. This helped them immensely. I also drank a lot of beer. Pretty sweet. I imagine beer helped a lot in regards to making life worth living back then. Uh, wine also available. They also raised sheep, pigs, cattle, ducks, pigeons. They made cheeses, cultured dairy products from milk. Fish swam in the rivers and the canals, dug to irrigate crops, uh, you know, ir to irrigate crop fields and gardens. So many fish. Mesopotamian uh, cuneiform tablets reveal over 50 varieties of fish that were a popular addition to the diet, which I think is incredible. Uh, cuneiform, by the way, is a type of character-based writing. And I do realize, stop your emails, it's most uh, often pronounced uh, cuneiform or cuneiform, but that's, but that's more of a British uh, pronunciation. I'm dumbing it down American style for my dumb American tongue. Uh, these tablets revealed they, uh, the Sumerians made spicy meat stews, duck and vegetable stews, braised turnips, baked pigeon pies. On the overall food front, they were fucking killing it. So much food. The Sumerians ate very well and an abundance of food fed, of course, a civilization. Location, location, location. Can't kill it on the food front uh, if you live somewhere that has nothing but hard to catch fish or nothing but like rattlesnakes and walnuts. Very hard to build a civilization and a solid menu if you only have rattlesnakes and walnuts to, to work with. Over 7,000 years ago, the Mesopotamian precursors to the Sumerians started constructing a series of temples using mud bricks, uh, possibly first at a site called Eridu. Had to worship some gods, had to thank some deities for all that fish and stew. Uh, Eridu will become a major Sumerian city. It seems to have been founded around 5400 BCE, almost 75 centuries ago. 
Eridu's status was legendary in ancient times. Babylonians who came after the Sumerians actually believed that Eridu was the oldest city on earth created by the gods themselves. Uh, one Sumerian tablet reads, after kinship had descended from heaven, Eridu became the seat of kingship. Oh, I think it was a, a, a typo there. After kingship had descended from heaven, it became the seat of kingship. Uh, sometime by 3900 BCE, possibly as early as 6500 BCE, the Ubaid people flourished in Mesopotamia, the first well-known culture for, from uh, living in Southern Mesopotamia there, the Ubaid period of Mesopotamia. Uh, in a lot of articles online, the accomplishments of Ubaid culture gets lumped in with the accomplishments of the Sumerians. Uh, actually, the accomplishments of the Akkadians, Babylonians, and Assyrians who will come afterwards also get lumped in. That made things a little tricky. Uh, it was during this period that the Ubaids began to build large temples, develop comparatively sophisticated architecture, but no written language yet. No real cities yet. So not quite civilization, but moving in that direction. Then we have the Sumerians show, showing up, coming from somewhere into Southern Mesopotamia, moving into the area that later became Babylonia and is now Southern Iraq, an area stretching from around Baghdad to the Persian Gulf, the area first settled by humans no later than 4,500 BCE. How do we know that? How do we know any of these approximate dates, right? If we don't, don't know the exact dates, if we don't have written records of a lot of these dates, how do we know these dates? Well, archaeologists use contextual clues and dating techniques like stratigraphy, stratigraphy, my God, come on, stratigraphy. Sorry, I, uh, this might sound crazy, but I don't, I don't say that word a lot in the daily course of my life. Uh, sites undergo stratification over time, leaving older layers beneath newer ones, like a layer of cake or a slice of lasagna. A site's lower layers are assumed to be older than those that lie above them. I love lasagna, by the way, especially when it has sausage in it, like homemade sausage, no bell peppers. Yeah, you know, just, just so you know. Uh, anyway, archaeologists also lean heavily on radiocarbon dating, a technique developed during the 1940s that relies on chemistry to determine the ages of objects. Uh, used on organic matter, the technique measures the amount of radioactive carbon decay to determine an object's age. It's believed to be accurate within a few decades when used on organic material. And there are many other dating techniques, uh, like uh, thermoluminescence dating, which measures how many years have elapsed since the heating of a material containing a crystalline mineral like ceramics, uh, they definitely don't just wing it and guess, but also they don't always find artifacts that lay out exactly to the, to the day when something was built. And sometimes it's very hard to determine even the decade or you know the exact century. Uh, using all these techniques, it seems as if by no later than 3500 BCE, the Sumerians had arrived. And they may have showed up as early as 4500 BCE. Uh, the Ubaid people were in lower Mesopotamia again before them. Then the Sumerians showed up again from somewhere Interesting detail about the Sumerians. No one knows for sure exactly where they came from uh, since their language developed independently and didn't relate to any other languages in the area. Uh, the Ubaid people likely taught the Sumerians a thing or two. The Sumerians may have conquered the Ubaid people. We just don't know for sure. Uh, the Ubaid, from what we do know, were notable for strides in the development of civilizations such as farming and raising cattle, weaving textiles, working with carpentry and pottery, and even enjoying beer. But again, again they didn't quite build cities. Uh, by 3500 BC, large-scale city-states began to emerge in Mesopotamia's southern region, aka Sumer, around the same time that the first plow was invented. People known as Sumerians were solidly in control of the whole area by 3000 BCE, but they didn't call themselves Sumerians. That term actually comes from 19th century French. They called themselves the black-headed people, and they didn't call their land Sumer. They just called it the land or the land of the black-headed people. Uh, in the biblical book of Genesis, Sumer is known as Shinar. I like the land. That's when you know you're an OG civilization, when you might be the first. When people are like, where are you from? 
And you're just like, the land. Obviously. I am from where everyone is from. Because there is no other place. What a stupid question. Uh, Their culture was comprised of a group of city-states governed by separate kings, similar to ancient Greece that way. That's another thing about Sumer. There's no evidence that it was ever a cohesive empire. It was a group of independent city-states that shared a language and a culture. Uh, There didn't seem to have been an iron throne. No one king to rule them all. Sumerian city-states included Eridu, Nippur, Lagash, Kish, or Kish, uh, Ur, and a place many considered the world's very first true city, Uruk. At its peak around 2800 BCE, Uruk had a population between 40,000 and 80,000 people living inside uh, six miles of defensive walls. That's a lot of wall. Clearly, they had some enemies. The legendary Sumerian king Gilgamesh, according to the chronology presented in the Sumerian king list, he ruled Uruk in the 27th century BCE. Uh, Gilgamesh was a king 2,000 years before the ancient Greeks allegedly started the Olympics to put how old this culture is into perspective. And I know they started the Olympics. There's just, you know, uh, a little speculation about exactly when. Uh, He reigned around the same time the pyramids of Giza were being built. He reigned 2,200 years before the Greeks founded Athens, 2,200 years before the birth of Socrates, long time ago. And so many Sumerians uh, were king before him. I uh, thought that Uruk was founded around 4,500 BCE. Again, 4,500 to 3,500. Uh, 45 centuries before Christ, nearly two millennia before the first Egyptian pyramids were built. And then there was a city of Ur, founded around 3,800 BCE. This city, according to the Bible, the birthplace of Abraham, who, if you didn't know, Pretty important dude. Uh, The father of all the big three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, if you've heard of them, and their various derivatives. Uh, Ur is thought to have housed somewhere around 30,000 people at its peak. As I said earlier, the Sumerians lived in these cities, spoke a non-Semitic language. I think I said that earlier. Spoke their own language. It It was not related to Arabic or Hebrew, and their origins are still unknown, largely because of that. Largely because they're probably aliens. Wake up, sheeple! Uh, Sorry, that's coming later. No, but for real, their origins are unknown. The Sumerian language wasn't related to other languages. Hard for linguistic detectives to trace its origin. It's speculated they came from the Zagros Mountains of northern Iraq, southern Turkey, or from Pakistan, possibly from northern Africa. It's a mystery. Scholars studied an important early clay tablet called Sumerian King List, or Chronicle of the One Monarch, to try and learn more about Sumerian origins. It's an old surviving list of the cities and rulers of the earliest Mesopotamian cultures dating from 2125 BCE. The list details the names and length of the reigns of the great kings of Sumer cities. And it includes Sumer's lone female monarch, uh, Kubaba, a woman tavern keeper who took the throne in the city-state of Kish sometime around 2500 BCE. Hail, Lucifina. Very little is known about Kubaba's reign or how she came into power, but the list credits her with making firm the foundations of Kish and forging a dynasty that will last a thousand or a hundred years. Ah, overstepped a bit for a second there. Added another zero. Uh, This list has not been real helpful in narrowing down where the Sumerians came from. Since, uh, you know, like so much ancient writing, it's not real big on literal facts. Uh, So hopefully these kings were real people. You know, um, they might not have been because some other things written in this uh, list of kings definitely is not literally true. Like, for example, it states that the first kingship came straight down from heaven. I doubt it. Uh, And it says that one important king supposedly lived for, check this out, 43,200 years. Hmm. So either that happened or people back then like to tell stories, like to exaggerate, to build legends, to help keep their people under control. Easier to rule over and control people if they believe that you're a god or that you come from the gods. You have the blood of gods in your veins. As we've learned in cult after cult suck. Uh, Man, what would it be like to uh, be 43,200 years old? 
I've heard this brought up a lot. You know, people believe like in ancient times, oh my God, people live like a thousand years, 2000 years, or like this shit, 43,200 years. I think that'd be terrible because how would it work? Let's, let's think about it. Would you get to adulthood just as quickly in this scenario as we do now? Like, would you still hit puberty around 12, 13, still be fully grown by 15 to 20 and then thicken up a bit in your twenties? And then what? The aging process just slows down like exponentially at that point. Like, uh, that's how you look in your thirties and forties, get extended out by about 40,000 years. Or do you just keep getting older and older and older, just like we do now, but you just don't die, <laughs> right? Like by 80, your back hurts almost all the time. Your bones are getting brittle. And then you're going to continue to age for over 43,000 more years. By the age of 150, you're literally begging people to please kill you. You're so fucking weak. You need help getting around. You need somebody to wipe your ass. You still have over 43,000 years to go. Ah, sounds horrific. You know, you, you spend the last 43,000 plus years shitting yourself in bed, just covered in bed sores, groaning and grunting. Hey, please kill me. Hey, kill me. Sounds like a horror movie. Sounds like you've been cursed. Or is it uh, different? Is everything slowed way down, uh, which would sound like a different kind of curse? Like for, ni- for nice round numbers for this hypothetical, let's go with the normal life expectancy of 80 and see how that gets stretched out into 43,200 years. 43,200 years divided by 80 is 540 exactly, which means that each year would become 540 years in this scenario. 197,100 days for each regular year of current aging, which means you will be a helpless baby under a year old for a day less than 540 fucking years. <laughs> that also means that you'd be a newborn, one day old baby for 540 days. An annoying, can't hold its head on its own, one day old baby for damn near a year and a half. Then an equally annoying, two day old baby for almost another year and a half. Going through puberty, you'd be a walking boner, ruled by hormones, having your voice crack all the time, dealing with pimples and all that shit for literally thousands of years. It's almost like this living super long shit definitely never happened, 1,000% never happened. And is only believed to be literally true by people who just refuse to break shit down like this. And just go to some fairy tale place in their head where I guess you just hit whatever your, your prime is and then you just stay there for like 40,000 plus years. And how would that work? Because magic! It's just magic, damn. Please let me have magic. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. Uh, refocusing now. Gilgamesh is on this old king list. We will examine the Epic of Gilgamesh soon, which has some uh, pretty familiar stories in it you may recognize. Uh, Likely the world's oldest piece of written literature that we have evidence of. It shares some uh, uh, interesting, crazy tales about Gilgamesh and his good old buddy uh, Enkidu. We'll also briefly look at the uh, Enuma Elish, the Sumerian Babylonian Epic of Creation. These are two of the texts most bastardized and insanely misinterpreted by ancient astronaut theorists. After the Sumerians, there will be uh, many people that will dominate the Mesopotamian region from the Akkadians to the Babylonians and the Assyrians all the way to the government of Iraq today. Uh, the Akkadian Empire created the, the major Akkadian-speaking nations of Assyria and Babylonia. Uh, you know who might have been an Akkadian? Nimrod. Hail Nimrod! The biblical Nimrod, mighty hunter, grandson of Noah, king of Shinar, may have been Akkadian or Assyrian or Babylonian or Sumerian, not kidding, or made up maybe. Babylon would fall around 539 BCE to a Persian invasion. The Persians would rule from 521 to 486 BCE under the reign of Darius I. The empire of Persia would extend from Macedon to Egypt and Palestine to India. By 499 BCE, the Greeks would rebel against their Persian rulers and the Persian wars would commence. They would continue until 448 BCE with Greece winning. 
And, you know, and then it goes into ancient Greece. And I think that's enough historical context for the Sumerians. Uh, they were there a long, long time before the ancient Greeks showed up. And the ancient Greeks are pretty fucking old. So they were old as fuck. So how did these ancient Sumerians live? Before the beginning of kingship in Sumer, the city-states were effectively ruled by theocratic priests and religious officials. Later, this role was supplanted by kings, while priests continued to exert great influence on Sumerian society. Right For the entirety of human civilization, there has been some dude hanging around going, that, 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 that's not what God wants. <laughs> that's not what God says. Uh, it's always been around. Uh, the people of Sumer had so many gods. Some say a couple hundred, some say around a thousand. Some think they had around 3,000 gods. So, you know, it's like a full-time job trying to figure out who you're supposed to pray to. Uh, seven seem to be the most important and not having a doctorate in Sumerian theology, I am probably going to fuck some of these words up. There was An, Enlil, Enki, Nirhasag, Nana, Utu, and Inanna. Many major deities in uh, Sumerian mythology were associated with specific celestial bodies. Inanna believed to be the planet Venus. Utu believed to be the sun, Nana, the moon. Uh, An was the god of the heavens, and Lil the god of wisdom and storm, Enki the god of water and human culture, uh, Ninhursag the goddess of fertility and the earth, Utu the god of the sun and justice, and his father Nana the god of poopo loophole. Uh, no, that'd be awesome. Uh, the god of the moon. Uh, easy to see how a lot of these gods would later carry over to the Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians. Uh, the Sumerians believe the first that first there were there was the primeval sea. They gave rise to united heaven and earth. Between heaven and earth came the air, whose main characteristic was expansion. The air produced the moon. The moon produced the sun. Once heaven and earth had been separated, plants, animals, human life became possible. Uh, we'll learn a bit more about Sumerian theology in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, each Sumerian city had a protector god. So you didn't have to memorize them all. You had your city god that would change over the years. Uh, and the king was regarded as that god's representative on earth. You know, very much like Egypt. And again, this is all very similar to Egypt, Greece, and Rome. Uh, so, so they had God kings, best kind of king to be. Each city's patron god had a temple erected on a step pyramid called a ziggurat. These temples symbolized the area's wealth and power. Better the temple, more important the god king. They employed many craftsmen. They also controlled large estates. When rich Sumerians died, they were buried with goods to use in the next life, like the Egyptians. Uh, these included weapons, jewelry, gold vessels, musical instruments. There's even evidence that slaves were buried with their masters in some cases. Below the kings were nobles and rich merchants who lived in considerable comfort in large houses with many rooms. Their houses were two stories high, arranged around a courtyard. Uh, the majority of people were poor and lived in simple mud and reed huts. And Sumer men were the majority of priests and scribes. Below them, craftsmen in the countryside, peasant farmers. At the bottom were the slaves who, of course, did the hardest and dirtiest work. Slavery goes all the way back to the very beginning of human civilization. And it's always not been a lot of fun. Sumerian women had uh, many rights, but most were not formally educated. They were kept busy on the lower economic rungs, weaving cloth and baskets at home. However, Sumerian women could own property, such as land and slaves, even businesses. Women uh, could also be witnesses in court, same as men. Uh, of the women who were taught to read, some became doctors and healers, while others were scribes or priestesses. And yes, they did have doctors. Eh, kind of. Like all ancient healers, uh, generally not great. When treating a sick person, they first diagnosed the cause of the illness, which was always some kind of sin the patient had committed. <laughs> so that sucks. Uh, your illness was uh, a punishment. What a double whammy, right? Not getting any sympathy. When everyone thinks you brought that shit on yourself, you know, some pathogen starts fucking you up and you just get judgment. Well, of course you have a fever, Wayne. You've been jerking off again to thoughts of your neighbor's wife, haven't you? Serves you right. Stop being such a naughty sin, boy, and maybe you'll feel better. 
Uh, yes, the Sumerians believed in sin. At least they did uh, based on writings by around 2500 BCE. What a bummer, right? Life's hard enough without adding worrying about some sin to your plate. The Sumerians believed they had been created to serve their gods and they served their gods with sacrificial offerings and supplications. They believed that the gods controlled the past and the future, that the gods had revealed to them the skills that they possessed, including writing, that the gods provided them with all they needed to know. Believing that the gods had given them all that, the Sumerians saw the intentions of their gods as good. And believing that their gods had great powers and controlled the world, they wanted an explanation for hardship and misfortune. Right? Why would their good gods let their kids die? Why would their good gods allow them to suffer with disease? Why would their good gods allow the occasional drought to destroy their crops? And the answer, of course, is that their gods, like damn near all the gods uh, I've studied from uh, what I can tell, are fucking sociopaths who love to hurt us. That's not what they concluded. They concluded that these gods, uh, uh, you know, uh, punished us because uh, they were displeased with us and they were displeased with us because we committed sin. We, we made errors that uh, upset them. They believed that when someone displeased their gods, the gods let demons punish the offender with environmental disasters such as a drought or general misfortune or illness, you know, death. Human ego, it's always got to make shit personal. You don't get sick because of happenstance. You don't get sick because of bad luck or nature just impersonally doing what nature do. No, sir. You get sick because God is mad at you. You fucked up, sinner. God is very interested in what you're up to because you're a very important person. He keeps a close eye on you. You're not just some dust in the wind. You know, you matter. But <laughs> there's consequences for mattering. God is watching. He will fuck your shit up if you make a mistake. Uh, to cure these six sinners, Sumerian doctors primarily required some form of confession for their sin, an acknowledgement that one had done wrong and an affirmation to do right in the future. And if the patient didn't get better, well, then they weren't being honest about their repentance. Sounds like it was easy to be a doctor back then and keep up a solid reputation, right? You'd just be like, there's no doctor better than me. Every single one of my good patients has of course recovered, 100% recovery rate. For patients who are not immoral pieces of shit, uh, doctors also gave patients various concoctions of herbs and such. They didn't just tell them to stop sinning. Antiseptics were made from a mixture of alcohol, honey, and myrrh. They tried to heal uh, broken bones. There's actually some ancient Mesopotamian writing stating, in the treatment of all wounds, there are three critical steps, washing, applying a plaster, and binding the wound. Uh, excuse me, the Mesopotamians recognized that uh, Washing a wound with clean water, making sure the doctor's hands also clean, prevented infection and hastened healing. So that's good. So, you know, they did have an impressive amount of medical knowledge for, for being that long ago. I mean, sadly, they had more than a lot of dark ages European doctors who over 5,000 years later, in some cases, were just uh, focused on bloodletting blood leeches and having a good look at your poop to, to cure you. Uh, don't think Sumerian doctors were all that advanced, though. They weren't ancient aliens advanced. Mostly Sumerian doctors did focus on pleasing the gods and trying to ward off demons. And that's how you know you have a good doctor. Still true today. When they're mostly focused on demons, right? That's why, that's why I like my doctor. You know, I go for my annual checkup and he's like, well, have you been fucking around with demons? I'm like, no, I haven't doctor. And he's like, well, then you're probably okay. Let me check with you. And he says some hocus pocus magic stuff. I don't feel any demons around you. I think you're good. Uh, the Sumerians worried quite a bit about demons in general, actually. Not saying that there's no demons, but they were very focused on demons. <laughs> they had a lot of gods and they had a lot of demons. Their underworld, most often known as uh, Kur, was a dark, dreary cavern located deep below the ground. Inhabitants were believed to continue a shadowy version of life on Earth. Unlike many other afterlives of the ancient world, in the Sumerian underworld, there was no final judgment of the deceased, and the dead were neither punished nor rewarded for their deeds in life. Ha! Huh. 
A person's quality of existence in the underworld, Sumerian heaven was called the garden of the gods, uh, was determined by his or her conditions of burial. How well the burial rites were followed. How pleased the gods are with the sacrifices. How fucked up is that? You can be the best person ever and some of your dickhead, you know, kin, they jack up your burial and you get fucking shitty life in demon, demon land. Meanwhile, some skeevy pedo dog fucker like serial killer Peter Curtin from a few weeks ago, you know, they could get a great funeral and they're doing pretty well in the afterlife. They're hanging around the, the garden of the gods. Uh, so what did these people do when they weren't praying and making sacrifices to their gods and really, really hoping their family didn't fuck up their funeral? Most Sumerians were farmers. And farmers, you know, they, they, uh, they farm and stuff. Seed, water, harvest, repeat, you get it. They stayed busy. Maybe they fucked a sheep from time to time, as we've learned, a fair amount of, you know, people have done. Uh, when they weren't farming, they worshiped their gods, making animal and crop sacrifices, hoping, you know, please gods would give them an abundance of crops, hoping, hoping demons didn't show up and ruin everything. Several times a year, they partied down, celebrating their faith in religious festivals. I thought this was cool. It involved music, fermented drinks, such as date wine, dancing. They actually had legit musicians, played uh, lyres, harps, lutes, later used drums and wind instruments. Uh, musicians in Mesopotamia were well-trained. The Sumerians had a recognized professional class of musicians who used chords and thirds. They had their uh, their very own triple M's. <laughs> Uh, Sumerian poets would recite verses about great kingly deeds as these festivals and golden cups filled with that sweet, delicious date wine would be lifted to toast the hosts. Sumerians knew how to party. When they had time, they played board games. Uh, numerous sources credit them with inventing the game of checkers, actually. Uh, they told stories. When they harvested their crops, they took them to markets in their cities and wheeled wagons. Yes, they invented the wheel. I think I said that already, but more on that soon. Uh, they took uh, crops to uh, market in boats floated them up and down the rivers and across their many canals. The cities had thriving marketplaces, shopkeepers, jewelers, other artisans. They made jewelry out of precious gold and uh, lapis lazuli, as well as fancy chairs, unglazed vases that kept water cool. Uh, they weren't great at sculptures because their artists didn't have much stone to work with, but they were uh, you know, really good at making other stuff. They made beautiful things with materials on hand, such as creating colorful mosaics and intricate and beautiful patterns using little pieces of painted clay. Uh, the Sumerians fell in love with each other. Of course they did. Often had their hearts broken. Marriage was a business arrangement with the family of the bride negotiating with the family of the groom for essentially the sale of their daughter. Sometimes just straight up the sale of their daughter. Sometimes they would actually have auctions for women for to be wives. Which is, you know, a huh, little, uh, little awkward. Uh, the bride was expected to be a virgin, also expected to bear her husband children. Uh, bringing it back to last week, there was also, no JK, a bunch of poophole loopholing going on. Of course, the history of civilization involves some old poop loophole. Sodomy was not looked down on by the Sumerians. It was seen as an effective form of contraception. And you know what? You can't argue there. Very hard to make a butt baby. A lot have tried. Many have tried. None have pulled it off as far as I know. Uh, also, the poop loophole wasn't just man to woman. Homosexual love could be enjoyed without fear of social stigma. And texts mentioned men preferring to take the female role in sex. There wasn't a lot of shame around sex uh, for dudes. As long as they were married to a woman who was having their kids... They could also get their fuck on with some of their dude friends and, uh, you know, some other ladies. Eh, women didn't have the same rights, which is, you know, unfortunate. Uh, not sure how woman-to-woman -woman sex was viewed. I'm guessing it was okay as long as women were giving their husbands kids. Uh, women, of course, pressured to be virgins for their husbands uh, and also not allowed to take on other lovers during marriage. I think this was less about religion here, more about male ego. My name must live on. Definitely about bloodlines. 
since they were important in determining who got the uh, heir to the throne, who got to keep the house in the next generation. You know, they had to be the, the son of the father, the firstborn son, that kind of shit. School was a part of Sumerian life. And that was brand new for us meat sacks. Many of the kids went to school, at least the boys, uh, sorry. Uh, not many girls, huh? unless their parents were rich. Uh, schools were attached to temples, at least initially. The rich lived in large homes inside of the walled cities. The poor lived in small homes, sometimes also inside the walled cities, unless they were off farming. Most cities, uh, you know, city homes, excuse me, were clustered around the ziggurat, the city's temple, and each other. They had shared walls for the most part, like townhouses do today. There was very little wood or stone available for use as building materials. So city people built their homes out of sun-dried mud bricks or cut sandstone. Uh, Doors led to a small family courtyard and then to the roof. The roofs were flat. When weather permitted, people cooked and slept on their roofs. Sounds pretty nice, actually. Uh, As the cities grew, rich and poor sections of town developed. In ancient Sumer, people were paid for their work. Uh, They had their own currency. They had early gold and silver coins, coins made out of uh, other metals, shekels. They are credited with inventing coinage. If they ran a shop or worked in the fields, they were paid for their goods or labor. Both rich and poor owned homes. Now, they had slaves, as I said, when the Sumerians of one city-state conquered another or a non-Sumerian city, they brought back prisoners uh, for them to serve as slaves. Slaves worked for the king, the temple, the wealthy. Uh, Women did have some rights, despite the virginity thing being sold to dudes, uh, sometimes at auctions, uh, the highest bidder, despite not being able to go to school for the most part. uh, They could go to the marketplace, buy and sell goods, handle legal issues, own property, start their own business. Upper-class women, like members of the royal family and those who gave their life to the temple as priestesses, uh, could learn how to read and write. Uh, they got to go to school. Some women even had job, jobs running parts of uh, the town or jobs in city government. There were many female goddesses. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, some cities selected a goddess rather than a god to be their patron deity. And, of course, there were a lot of female demons. Lots of those, too. Lucifina. Uh, women were not equal to men, but they did have rights. And what were all these people wearing? Skirts, mostly. Men and women wore big skirts, more like shawls in some ways, made of a fleece-like fabric known as countercase. The length of the skirts varied according to hierarchical, or high, hierarchical, hierarchical. I fucking hate that word. Hierarchical status. Uh, servants, slaves, and soldiers wore skirts, while royalty and deities wore long skirts. That's so funny to me. Uh, the longer your skirt, the more important your status. Very interesting. You see a dude whose skirt doesn't even cover his nuts. You got to steer clear of that deadbeat. Nothing good is coming from old skirt nuts. Skirt nuts is having a hard time getting a wife. He's not living in one of the nice homes near the temple. Uh Uh-uh. Skirt nuts is slumming it on the other side of the world or the other side of the wall. Excuse me. King's not real worried about protecting skirt nuts. He's not a high priority. Uh, The women wore lots of jewelry depending on status. Skirt nuts wife probably had like a wedding ring made out of some candy or some pigeon bones. Now let's learn about how they live their daily lives through their inventions. Uh, One of the main reasons many are so fascinated with the Sumerians is because of how many crazy contributions they made to the world, many of which I've already referenced. Uh, Makes sense to me. They made a lot of discoveries. Once you make a few big ones, those lead directly to more. Discovery leads to more discovery, right? I mean, you make a pottery wheel. Now you know how a wheel works. And eventually you apply that to a cart. Then you got a wheeled cart going. And now eventually you're going to learn how to apply that to some military piece of machinery. Now you got a chariot. Now you have a thriving economy with lots of buyers, lots of food to sell, and a slow-moving river nearby a superior army protecting your crops, well, now you can learn how to make a sailboat, speed up some commerce. There's financial incentive and you have the time and protection to do it since you're not hunting or gathering. Okay, quick note here on first inventions. While numerous sources back up all the claims I'm laying out here today for the Sumerians, if you do a little digging online, 
you'll find that almost each of these contributions may have also come from a different ancient civilization, at least according to some sources. A lot of Turkish sources say that some things, not surprisingly, come from Turkey first. Ditto for Russian sources, Indian sources, Chinese sources, etc. A lot of people want to think that their ancestors did it first, obviously. And to be fair to numerous cultures, as more and more archaeological sites are being unearthed around the world, ancient history does keep being rewritten. And some of these, this happened here first claims, might end up being taken out of the proverbial trophy case. So if you think, hey, wait a minute, I thought I heard about uh, so-and-so, uh, somebody else inventing that. Yeah, you probably did hear that. Before we go over inventions, this seems like maybe the least intrusive place for today's mid-episode sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. 
Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Hope you heard something appealing to you. Now back to our overview of Sumerian innovation and inventions. Let's start with that wheel. The Sumerians generally considered to be the first to invent the wheel. Pretty important innovation. Right up there with the fire, pinup girl themed lingerie and video games. The oldest wheel axle ever discovered is not actually on a wagon or a cart, but instead on a potter's wheel in Mesopotamia, around 6,000 years old, going back to roughly 4,000 BCE. And then the Sumerians figured out the concept of the wheel to be used in transportation by around 3,500 BCE which started out as a solid disc of wood with rotating axles inserted in it. By 2000 BC, it began to be hollowed out to make a lighter wheel. Imagine going from no wheel to wheel. Imagine if your job is to carry heavy shit from point A to point B. And for a few years, you've been carrying everything in reed baskets, piggybacking a bunch of mud bricks around or whatever. And then your neighbor just you know, shows up going on buying a loaded up wheeled cart being pulled by a donkey. He's carrying 20 times as many bricks as you. That, that would be such a, are you fucking kidding me? Like, moment. That will blow your ancient mind. How do you get that? Uh, the innovation of the wheel led to major advances in two main areas. The most important was farming as it contributed to the mechanization of agriculture, which included animal traction and crop irrigation. The wheel also changed warfare. Armored Sumerian war chariots being pulled by donkeys now. Big advantage on your no-wheel-having-broke-ass if you're just hoofing it in battle. That armored chariot's going to carry some intimidation points. From their chariots, Sumerians used bows and arrows as well as spears, axes, and clubs. They used iron and bronze weapons. They started fucking around with bronze around 3500 BCE as well. They made mace, uh, maces, uh, sickle swords, uh, spears, slings, javelins, clubs, knives, uh, you know, axes. Most soldiers used axes, daggers, and spears. Uh, armor included copper and bronze helmets as well as bronze armor and cloaks studded in metal discs. By 2100 BCE, bronze scale armor had been developed. Sumerian soldiers used basic bows before they fell to the Akkadians. Many of their soldiers used bows. Soldiers wore leather jackets studded with bronze, which gave them some protection, made them look super fucking cool. Now I'm picturing them wearing white t-shirts, greased back hair with cigarettes tucked behind their ears. They didn't look like that exactly, unfortunately. Uh, they wore copper helmets and carried rectangular shields. They had a lot of weapons and armor and chariots, and they fought with each other a fair amount before fighting against outsiders in their final years. Even though the Sumerian city-states of the region shared a common language and cultural traditions, they are believed to have engaged in near-constant warfare. They resulted in several different dynasties and kingships. Uh, this infighting led to some military advancements uh, beyond the chariot. For example, the Sumerians may have invented the phalanx formation. Phalanx in military science is a tactical formation consisting of a block of heavily armored infantry standing shoulder to shoulder in files several ranks deep. Uh, previously, Troops uh, just ran amok into battle, a little more helter-skelter uh, style. The phalanx was more fully developed thousands of years later by the ancient Greeks. 
and then survived in modified form all the way into the gunpowder era. Uh, the Sumerians also developed siege warfare, right? Uh, aim the Greg. <laughs> what is it? Load the Greg. Aim the Greg. Fire the Greg. I started off with uh, load the Gilgamesh. Uh, during the latter stages of their history, they were attacked and then conquered by the Elamite, Akkadians, and nomadic Gutians. All their fighting with each other left them vulnerable eventually to being invaded by outside forces. They weakened each other a little bit. Uh, Elam developed just a few centuries behind the Sumerians, if you've never heard of them, living east and south of them. Uh, back to inventions. Sumerians also had small sailboats. Their predecessors, the Ubaids, had them at least as far back as 5500 BCE. Ubaid ships made from bundles of reeds roped together, covered with a thick layer of material for waterproofing. While they didn't invent them, the Sumerians were the first civilization to utilize these sailboats. They may have sailed as far as way as India, according to some sources. For sure, thousands of sailboats carrying goods to and fro around the outskirts of the cities, also into the cities, sailing along the rivers, sailing through many irrigation canals. They became adapted for use basically as uh, canals for travel. Some canals connected between uh, the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. They had their own watery highways with wheeled carts and sailboats. They were engaging in a level of commerce previously unseen. They were also the first to embrace formal education, right? They gave us the first schools. We talked about that. Uh, they gave us the first dictionaries, libraries, book lists. By the end of their civilization, schools didn't just emanate out of their temples. Knowledgeable scribes opened their own private schools, charged tuition. Students studied primarily uh, the written language, history, and basic mathematics. Uh, the Sumerians also invented the aquarium, kind of. They pioneered the concept of fish keeping. Ancient Sumerians started keeping wild-caught fish in ponds before preparing them for meals. Genius! That's a big jump. It's almost kind of like a refrigerator, right? You get to save it for later. Don't have to worry about it spoiling. Keep it fresh. How great if you have a pond full of fish. You know, you got to go net one whenever you just want to fish for dinner instead of hoping to catch it out of the river. A super popular fish dish served in Iraq today, musgoof, seasoned grilled carp, a dish considered Iraq's national dish, has been served for dinner day after day uh, in the area, going back to the Sumerians. How cool is that? They've been cooking the same dish the same way for roughly 5,000 years. Uh, these river carp are split lengthwise down the back, washed, spread out into a single flat piece. The fish is opened up into the shape of a large symmetrical circle. The cook bastes the inside of the fish with a marinade of olive oil, rock salt, teramond, ground turmeric, crushed tomatoes, and coriander, sometimes added to the marinade. The fish is either then impaled on two sharp iron spikes or placed in a, in a big iron clamshell grill with a handle and a locking snare designed specifically for this dish. Then it is slow cooked in a fire altar, a big open air area uh, raised by a podium-like sandbox. It's either um, round, octagonal, or sometimes rectangular in the middle of uh, which there's a large fire. It's cooked for two to three hours, then laid on hot coals, skin side down. This crisps the skin, helps release the flesh from it for serving. Sounds delish. If I ever make it to Baghdad, I want to have some. And again, it sounds like those Sumerians ate pretty well. Uh, math was a pretty cool first for the Sumerians. You know, if you're into math or whatever. Uh, I don't know a lot about what good has come from math, but some people like it. Uh, JK, of course, easy nerds. Uh, when the Sumerian civilization began to flourish, people started to trade. They needed an accurate system to count goods, count money. The Sumerians were the first people on earth that we know of to develop the concept of advanced counting. This is where the base 60 system of counting 60 seconds into minutes, you know, 60 minutes into an hour, 360 degrees into a circle, all that stuff comes from. Uh, they they uh, pioneered that. Starting as early as the fourth millennium BCE, Sumerians began using small a small clay, a small clay cone to represent one, a clay ball for 10 and a large cone for 60. 
Uh, no more fucking around with just finger counting when it came to buying and selling goods. Hashur was done with just winging it when it came to Timmons' barley wheelings and dealings. He wanted to know exactly what he was getting. Uh, the concept of zero would soon be developed by the Babylonians after the Sumerians. People understood the value of having nothing before this, of course, but the concept of numerical zero was not invented until then. This tiny little discovery of mathematics would open up the door to the incredible process uh, that that continually unlocks our understanding of the basic language of the universe today. Think of how math is used in construction, engineering, tech, industrialization, space exploration. Uh, Pretty big contribution to kick that off. And there's farming. We went over that one quite a bit. Another big contribution. Uh, The Sumerians began their farming escapades with very simple tools. Basically, they began with sticks and stones. But as the Bronze Age began, they soon learned they could manipulate nature in new ways to create more sophisticated farming tools and techniques. Sowing or planting of the seeds, originally done simply by digging holes in the ground with sticks. Soon the sticks, though, they were given handles. Then they were arranged in like a V shape. The bottom of the V would scrape into the ground so that a long ditch could be dug. The seeds would fall into the ditch. This new device was the earliest form of the plow. The first evidence for plows in Mesopotamia only appears at the end of the 4th millennium BCE as pictographs on the clay tablets from Uruk. Seed plows with a funnel through which seed was dropped onto the furrow uh, depicted on seals from at least 2300 BCE. Uh, Most farmers made tools from locally available clay, stone, and timber, although timber became more and more rare as time went on and populations grew. It wasn't a lot to start with. Uh, They would eventually have to trade with neighbors in present-day Syria and Turkey for important lumber products. Uh, workers on palace and temple estates were sometimes issued with copper alloy tools from the 3rd millennium BC and with iron equipment for the uh, early 1st millennium BC, though they were always subject to close control because metal was expensive. Uh, because of the hottest fuck temperatures, river water was essential for crop growth, so the Sumerians dug the world's first known irrigation canals to bring water to their crops. Irrigation helped keep the soil mo- moist and, as we mentioned earlier, uh, delivered essential nutrients to the soil. Luckily, the conditions for growing food were so good that Mesopotamians often found themselves with a surplus of it. The canals were once created solely for the purpose of irrigation, soon became, as I referenced earlier, widened and lengthened, and then used for trading surplus goods or goods not grown or created locally for buying those. All this happened thousands of years before the Silk Road that would connect east to west in the second century BCE. Uh, By creating these new and larger waterways, the farmers not only became tradespeople, but much of the transportation around the city in general was done via boats using the canals. Think Venice, Italy. And when it came time to harvest, farmers would use a sickle to cut down sheaves or bundles of wheat. The sickle was invented in Mesopotamia. Another huge invention. A sickle is a curved blade attached to a handle. It can cut down dozens of stalks of grain with one stroke of the arm. Think of the Grim Reaper. Uh, some of the first sickles had blades made out of flint or polished stone. Later in the evolution of Sumer, farmers learned how to uh, mold metals like copper and bronze. That helped make tools more durable and efficient. Without sickles, wheat and other crops would have to be cut down or plucked just a few stalks at a time. This was kind of like their version of the Industrial Revolution. To carry the freshly cut harvest back to the settlement, Mesopotamians used baskets made out of reeds. Uh, Reed boats, reed baskets, a lot of reed. Living that reed life. Because reeds grew abundantly in the marshes of the rivers. They were quick to grow back. They provided excellent material for collecting and carrying goods, uh, amongst many other uses. Back at the settlements, the harvest crop would begin the process of becoming food for the Sumerians. Stones used to grind grains into flour, meats into smaller edible pieces. Uh, Sometimes grains could be crushed between two stones. With easier farming methods, days that were once spent entirely in the field could now be spent learning different skills. Farmers can now spend more time tending to livestock, crafting better tools for preparing their food, creating stronger baskets and cloth, learning how to trade. Another very important area of contribution, language. 
uh, the most important thing, arguably, the Sumerians created, the written word. First discovered from clay tablets dating to the mid-4th millennium BCE, Sumerian considered the oldest language ever recorded in writing. Egyptian, also pretty fucking old, but not believed to be quite as old as Sumerian. Uh, the written version of this Mesopotamian language is the cuneiform. Cuneiform is a logosyllabic script used to write several languages of the ancient Near East. Uh, the script was active uh, in active use from the early Bronze Age until the beginning of the Common Era. Name, excuse me, name for the characteristic wedge-shaped impressions from uh, which form its signs. Sumerian was an isolated, oh boy, agglute, agglutinating language. Not a fun word to say there. Uh, which means that a statement was formed from a root word by adding prefixes and suffixes. This will just take a second. The word order of Sumerian was generally uh, S-O-V, subject, object, verb. When the verb was transitive and S-V for an intransitive verb. So Sumerian was an ergative language, meaning that there was a special marker for the object of the transitive verb, and that this marker was applied to the subject of an intransitive verb. So what the fuck does that all mean? English is not an ergative language, or ergative, excuse me, ergative language, and it also does not distinguish between the use of a noun for a subject and for an object. However, personal pronouns in English are generally so distinguished. So we say he kissed her and she kissed him, right? In English, we say uh, he puckered up. Uh, but if English were an er ergative language, we would say him puckered up. The him puckered up. Uh, him puckered up. There we go. Jesus. Basically, the old Sumerian language of the early dynastic period, at least roughly 2600 BCE to 2400 BCE, uh, and then onwards must have sounded similar to the syntax that Yoda uses from Star Wars. Hot as fuck this desert is. I stuck to my leg, Yoda's balls are. That kind of thing. Uh, the language is used until the end of the third millennium and then for another 2,000 years afterwards as an important cultural language, kind of how Western nations look at Latin now. Then it disappeared for a couple thousand years, only rediscovered recently by archaeologists in the mid-19th century and linguistics or linguistic uh, professors, linguists. Uh, this disappearance has given the Sumerian language such an air of mystery, which of course fires up the ancient aliens crowd. If something seems mysterious, someone must be hiding some kind of truth from us, right? Illuminati. And if the truth is hidden, it must contain powerful secrets that, if known, would unlock humanity from some kind of slavery that some of us think that we're in. Totally. If only they would stop hiding shit from us, we could probably all stop working and hang out on beaches and drink Mai Tais and nap and fuck a couple times a day. But our shadowy masters will not allow it. Damn you, Anunnaki, Babylonian Brotherhood bastards. Uh, once decoded, we learned that these Sumerian texts included the earliest literary, literary works, opinion pieces, poetry, law codes, royal inscriptions, letters, legal documents, and large numbers of administrative economic documents. Some 100,000 texts of the latter category are available from the 21st century BCE alone. Uh, basically, they kept a record of everything going on in their society, which is why we now know uh, about a people who lived so long ago. And one of the record areas we're not really getting into is government. They did pioneer like a complex system of government. Uh, but around 4,000 years ago, after such a prolific period of writing and doing so much, this great civilization and its language died out. So what happened? Cultural destruction and absorption, it seems, and possibly an extended drought that may have starved many of them, and possibly a lack of easily accessible local iron ore deposits that eventually sent many of their people off as cultures around them got better and better with iron. And then their you know, uh, people migrated to other stronger cultures with better weapons. There's a lot of theories. Uh, the empires that eventually destroyed them or at least uh, picked up where they left off or absorbed them in Mesopotamia. Most of the Akkadians had their own languages. And to the victors uh, have traditionally gone uh, the choice of what language their civilization gets to speak. So the Akkadians may have just been like, oh, we don't want to fucking use that language anymore. 
We're going to speak Akkadian now. And the Akkadian tongue would also go on to become a dead language. So how have we learned so much about a culture uh, with a dead language that was replaced by another culture with another dead language? Exceptionally talented linguistic scholars, code breakers, really, like Spain's Miguel Civil, used their big brains to figure shit out for the rest of us who would never take the time to do so. Uh, Miguel Civil was the world's leading expert in Sumerian until his death in 2019 at the age of 92, working on Sumerian, uh, you know, translations until the very end. He's a hero and a giant in the world of deciphering Sumerian cuneiform. He's the Michael Jordan of understanding Sumerian. Dude could jump from the free throw line with his tongue out and still pump slam. A little bit of Sumerian. This former scholar at the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute, the world's leading center for the study of ancient Near Eastern civilizations, was described as understanding Sumerian better than anyone has ever understood this uh, since the actual Sumerians were still alive. Dude was a linguistic da Vinci, so far ahead of anyone else. When Civil arrived at the Oriental Institute in 1963, scholars still struggled with interpreting many basic aspects of the language's grammar, lexicon, and literature. Civil possessed an intuition for Sumerian that was almost magical, colleagues said. The young Catalan professor would spend the next four decades revolutionizing our understanding of ancient Sumerian life, literature, grammar, and socioeconomics. Uh, Chris Woods, director of the Oriental Institute and fellow Sumerologist, says, Miguel's academic contributions are simply monumental. More than any other scholar, he shaped the modern study of Sumerology. The Oriental Institute is home to more than 6,000 cuneiform tablets uh, of Sumerian and Akkadian origin, the two primary ancient languages of Mesopotamia. And Woods has said, Miguel forged new territory in the understanding of the language by looking at it in a much more sophisticated way than had ever been done before, drawing on modern linguistics and fundamental truths about how languages are organized. He translated everything from hymns to agricultural texts to the earliest known medical text. Uh, substantially transforming scholars' picture of life in ancient Sumer. He also resurrected large swaths of Sumerian literature, said Civil's former student, Jean Gregg, professor emeritus uh, of the Near Eastern Languages and Linguistics, former director of the Oriental Institute, who said he had a rather uncanny ability for recognizing and deciphering the meaning of these texts. Sumerian literary and scholarly texts rely on a complex web of intercultural connections metaphorical reasoning and arcane knowledge known only to the scribal elite. And Miguel had this wonderful ability to elucidate these subtle connections and unpack them. I bet that motherfucker even had an ear for pronunciation better than mine, which is probably top 10 in the world. You know what I mean? Uh, in all honesty, it sounds like that dude understood Sumerian better than I understand English. Uh, one of Sybil's translations was a 3,500-year-old drinking song that describes how to brew Sumerian beer he would actually be able to decipher Sumerian uh, you know, language so well, he would find Sumerian beer recipes and make beer that apparently was uh, pretty decent. Uh, but here's that, here's that drinking song that he uh, translated being performed. Okay, maybe that wasn't quite Sumerian. Maybe that was a last call for alcohol from the alcoholics. Fuck yeah, bro. I may have tried to wear that CD out in 1994. I seriously love that album so much. They never got the credit they deserved. Uh, it holds up, I think. Uh, this is the actual Sumerian drinking song, which I think is a lot less catchy than what we just heard. Kakule, kakule, kakule. 
Uh, that song is a drinking song in the sense that it makes me want to drink enough to somehow think it's not horrible if that's even possible. That's some Yoko Ono type uh, music. I'm, I'm surprised she hasn't fucking covered that yet. Uh, but you know what? Got to grade it on a curve. They were just figuring out songwriting. Uh, while we're talking about beer, archaeologists have found evidence of Mesopotamian uh, beer making dating back to the 4th millennium BCE. Uh, their preferred ale seems to have been a barley-based concoction so thick that it had to be sipped through a special kind of filtration straw. Yum! Um, uh, the Sumerians may have invented beer making, but it probably went back farther to other Mesopotamian people, like the Ubaid people or somebody else in the, uh, in the Mesopotamian area who just didn't keep written records. The Sumerians prized their beer for its nutrient-rich ingredients and hailed it as the key to a joyful heart and a contented liver. Joyful heart, that part sounds right. I don't know about the liver part. I don't think they knew how livers worked. Another guy who uh, worked a lot on translating ancient Sumerian texts, uh, who was much, much worse at it than Miguel Civil, is uh, Zechariah Sitchin, key player in building out the ancient astronaut mythology. He turned the historical writings of the Epic of Gilgamesh into a controversial, very sci-fi, and very popular ancient astronaut's origin story. Almost nothing he came up with regarding the Sumerians has been supported by credible linguistic scholars. He did not work at the Oriental Institute. Dr. Civil attended a Catholic boarding school at the Abbey of Montserrat, where he began teaching himself rudimentary Akkadian and Sumerian by studying the Abbey's vast collection of cuneiform tablets. Then he studied at the prestigious, uh, prestigious EPHE in Paris, a research university that offers the best Mesopotamian study program in the world. Uh, he studied Sumerian there, uh, getting a graduate degree, went on uh, Sumerian archaeology digs. Uh, he became a lingu linguistic professor at the University of Chicago, married another linguist scholar. Zechariah Stitch uh, Sitchin's education in Sumerian is uh, completely self-taught. Huh. Comparing the two of them when it comes to Sumerian knowledge is the equivalent of comparing a homeschooler to someone with a MIT doctorate. Can a homeschooler be smarter than an MIT grad? Yeah, they can. Are they going to be as educated? Well, no, they're not. Uh, in all likelihood. Very unlikely. More on Sitchin's interesting Sumerian translations later. Uh, let's first look at a bit more uh, widely accepted, at least in academic circles, translation of Sumerian writings. The most famous literary work of the Sumerians is the Epic of Gilgamesh. One of the most famous literary works of all time because it is the first found. The Epic of Gilgamesh, an epic poem from ancient Mesopotamia, considered the earliest known written non-religious story, at least, uh, in the world. Uh, again, that we know of. An epic poem, a lengthy narrative work of poetry, these long poems typically detail extraordinary feats and adventures of characters from a distant past. Uh, the word epic comes from the ancient Greek term epos, which means story, word, and poem. We've looked at some epic poems before uh, here in the Greek gods suck, the Norse gods suck, the Dante's Inferno suck. Uh, we've touched on it in other episodes. The Epic of Gilgamesh originated as a series of Sumerian legends and poems in cuneiform script dating back to nearly the third or late second millennium BC, which were later gathered into a longer Akkadian poem. The most complete version existing today is preserved on 12 damaged clay tablets written by a Babylonian scribe somewhere between 1300 and 1000 BCE. Fragments of Sumerian versions dating to roughly 2000 BCE have also been found. The most complete version, discovered in 1849 in the library of the 7th century BCE Assyrian king, oh boy, uh, Ashurbanipal in Nineveh, capital of the ancient Assyrian empire located in modern-day Iraq. It's written in standard Babylonian, a dialect of Akkadian, only used for literary purposes. Uh, the original title, based on the opening words, was He Who Saw the Deep. 
The title in earlier Sumerian versions was Surpassing All Other Kings. Fragments of other compositions of the Gilgamesh story have been found in other places in Mesopotamia and as far away as Syria and Turkey. The Akkadian Standard Edition is the basis of most modern translations, with the older Sumerian versions being used to supplement it and fill in the gaps. Let's break it down. And heads up, it is not a great story. Like if you went to the bookstore and were to choose something gripping and fun to read with fleshed out characters you, you related to, uh, this is probably not going to be the book. I'm going to try and spice it up with some commentary. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense in parts, but it provides some awesome insight into the world's oldest, or at least uh, one of the oldest cultures. And I did have a lot of fun, at least with the notes, uh, mocking much of it. Okay, in the beginning of the epic, there's a brief description of the creation of life. We've gone uh, over quite a few creation mythologies here in TimeSuck. Nice to have a look at what is likely the oldest one ever written down. According to the old texts, originally there was only Namu, the primeval sea. Then Namu gave birth to An, the sky, and Ki, the earth. An and Ki fucked each other. It's some old sky and dirt fucking, maybe even some old poopo loophole, causing Ki to give birth to Enlil, the god of wind, rain, and storm. Enlil separated On from Ki and carried off the earth as his domain, while On carried off the sky. The Sumerians believed the earth was flat and the sky was a series of usually uh, three domes, but sometimes seven. It's, it's tricky to figure out how many domes cover a flat earth. Each dome was made of precious stones, which signified specific gods. Like they had like a gold dome. You know, you got a, got a gold dome up there somewhere. Uh, maybe, maybe like a diamond dome. Uh, I feel like it'd be easier to mine like sky gems than it is to do it from like tunnel mining, right? You just go open a hot air balloon, climb up some kind of ladder, you know, just look for, just scrape off diamonds or some shit. Uh, the text also detailed the Sumerian ideas of an afterlife, which said that humans couldn't go to heaven, the realm of the gods, but instead went to Kur, also known as Irkala, which was a dark underworld located deep inside the earth's surface, much like the Hebrew uh, Sheol of the Talmud, the place of darkness where the dead go, but very unlike the Christian version of hell of today, where, you know, demons are gnashing their teeth and stuff. All souls went to the underworld regardless of how they acted in life. All were treated the same. Although by the third dynasty, they believed that if you were treated better, you know, if you're buried with more care, as we went over. So I thought the whole uh, better hope your family buries you right or going to hell concept was a bummer. This is even more of a bummer. It's everybody goes to hell. Uh, Sumerians believed that the underworld inhabitants ate dust and drank liquids given to them via a burial tube uh, at the gravesite by their surviving relatives. The entrance to Kerr was believed to be located in the Zagros Mountains, which are in modern-day Iran, northern Iraq, and southeastern Turkey. So, so a good old hollow earth cave. Still have people looking for those today. Uh, the Gilgamesh epic's prelude offers a general introduction to the most famous hero of Mesopotamia, Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, the mighty king of the third dynasty of Ur, which thrived around 2100 BCE. Gilgamesh was recorded to be two-thirds god and one-third man. Fuck yeah, bro. Probably had an extra third of Whipple running through his veins. He was blessed by the gods with strength, courage, unprecedented beauty. He was given the attributes of the strongest and greatest king who had ever existed. He built magnificent ziggurats, you know, temple towers, uh, surrounded his city with high walls, laid out his orchards and fields. But all, and although Gilgamesh was great and godlike in body and mind, Reed probably had a big old peen, uh, he was also a dickhead, known to most as a cruel despot for the good portion of his, of his, of his reign. He lorded over his subjects, very arrogant. He uh, raped any woman who struck his fancy, whether she was the wife of one of his warriors or the daughter of a nobleman. So a bit more than a jerk. He was a serial rapist, uh, which sadly was super common in the ancient world. Uh, rape shows up uh, all over the place in ancient texts. Shows up in several uh, places in the Old Testament. Even King David seems to have done some raping. Among a lot of Christian scholars today, there is an emerging and common new rapey interpretation of the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. 
Here's the NIV, a.k.a. New International Version translation. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, or Uriah the, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Or uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. The rape is kind of glossed over here, but uh, people uh, are focusing now with the rape stuff on, uh, he sent messengers to get her. Not asking if she'd like to meet him for dinner or, you know, if she's betrothed anyone or, you know, if she'll maybe speak to him. Maybe they can have, uh, you know, just hang out a little bit, go for a walk. No, he saw some hot lady taking a bath, you know, naked. He's like, I like the way she looks. And then he grabs his thugs, like, go get her and bring her to me. <laughs> you know, and then she gets pregnant. Sounds, sounds like rape. Uh, that's what kings and a lot of other dudes did back in olden times. They raped uh, and they were often never punished. It was, their, it was their right to do so. And so many think the world's going to shit now. No, uh, uh, the world used to be shit. It used to be a lot rapier than it is today. Uh, Gilgamesh, when he was not raping, also built a lot of stuff with forced labor, exhausted subjects, suffered under his oppression. You know, things weren't looking good for everyday Mesopotamian folks when he was in charge. So the gods heard the pleas of the common folk about the rapey making the subjects work too much king and they decided to intervene. And they created a wild man named uh, Enkidu, who was just as much of a badass in the warrior sense as Gilgamesh. And Enkidu starts off in the story living a natural life with wild animals. And he soon starts bothering the shepherds and trappers of the area because he's jostling with the animals at their watering hole. He sounds like a fucking maniac. People were worried about this crazy ass Enkidu. They didn't like some wolf man, some beast master dude hanging around at the watering hole. And eventually an animal trapper, uh, you know, freaked out, got freaked out by Enkidu. Uh, so much that he asked his rapey king to please do something about it. Gilgamesh now sends a temple prostitute, Shamhat, uh, to seduce and tame en Enkidu. And after six days and seven nights of a lot of fucking, he's no longer a wild beast who lives with animals. Hail Lucifina! He's whipped. Lucifina broke his spirit. He'd rather now lay naked in bed with a beautiful woman, doing what horny naked people do in bed than fight with lions and jackals at a watering hole. Playing with boobs, way better than fighting with jackals. Soon learns the ways of civilized men. And like all human gods who are raised by animals, he is now shunned by the animals he used to live with. The jackals are all butthut. Or butthut? What am I? Butthurt. That he picked a naked lady over their furry little loopholes. After losing his animal buddies, the temple prostitute, who he's uh, now infatuated with, eventually persuades him to come live in the city. Around this time, Gilgamesh has some strange dreams. His mother, Ninsen, explains his dreams are an indication that a, a mighty friend is coming to join him. Now Gilgamesh and Enkidu are buddies. How did their friendship develop? Who knows? It's never explained. Not a lot of character development or relationship building in this story. Things just happen. According to the text, Enkidu now helps keep the psycho king in check. Maybe he talks about, you know, how back at the waterhole, he figured out, fucking around the jackals, that you probably shouldn't rape. That makes jackals mad. Harder to be friends, you know, if you're raping them. And maybe Gilgamesh is like, yeah, but if I don't rape, how am I supposed to have sex with people who don't want to sex with me? Maybe en Enkidu is stumped then. I don't know. Uh, again, story's not big on details. But the wild man tries to help uh, change the king's ways. And then one day, Engitu, or Engitu, fucking Enkidu, <laughs> his name doesn't flow off the tongue. Not my, not my tongue. Gilgamesh, I'm like, fucking pow. Gilgamesh, got it. Enkidu. Ah, okay. Uh, he oversteps his advisory role, and now the two have to fight. One day, when Gilgamesh comes to a wedding party to sleep with the bride, and by sleep, I mean rape, as is his custom, he finds his way blocked by Enkidu, who opposes Gilgamesh's advances and ego. Fucking Gilgamesh. 
Can't stop with the raping. So they get in a fight over it, right? This guy tells the God King, hey, don't do that. He's like, no one fucking tells me what to do. They fight after the battle where Gilgamesh defeats Enkidu. He spares his life. And then after sparing his life, he begins to understand and adhere to what Enkidu said. He's like, okay, wait a minute. Maybe you are right. People don't like to be raped. Okay, I'm gonna try and be nicer. And I'm gonna strive to learn the virtues of mercy and humility along with courage, nobility. Okay. And now both Gilgamesh and Enkidu are transformed for the better through their newfound friendship. And they learn many lessons from each other. Enkidu learns that, you know, there's no point living around wild animals like Tarzan. And Gilgamesh learns to try and keep his dick out of poop holes that don't want to be loopholed. In time, they begin to see each other as brothers and they become inseparable. And years later, now they're bored with peaceful life in Uruk, not raping anybody. And, and Gilgamesh wants to make an everlasting name for himself. So he proposes that they travel to the sacred cedar forest to cut down some great trees and then rape the guardian, the demon Humbaba, uh, JK. He sets off to kill the demon. But because of uh, who he is, I would just picture him being like, well, can I at least rape a demon? I mean, come on. I've been, I've been taking it easy on women for a couple of years. You got to let me rape something. Uh, Humbaba is a scary ass demon. In one translation, he's described as having the paws of a lion and a body covered in thorny scales. His feet had the claws of a vulture and on his head were the horns of a wild bull. His tail and phallus each ended in a snake's head. Oh shit, he got, he got snake for a dick. Gilgamesh better be worried about him getting raped. You don't want to get your poop hole loophole with a snake dick. That sounds extra bad. Enkidu objects to this plan as the cedar forest is the sacred realm of the gods and it's not meant for mortals. But neither Enkidu nor the council of elders in Uruk can convince Gilgamesh not to go. If they're going to not let him rape any local women anymore, they're going to have to at least let him go to a sacred forest and try and kill a snake dick demon. They're going to have to meet him halfway. Gilgamesh's mother also complains about the quest. She doesn't want him to go, but he's going. You know, so eventually she's like, okay, fine. And she asks the sun god, Shamash, for his support. And she also gives Enkidu some advice and adopts him as her second son for good measure. Weird. Okay, go ahead, son. Try and kill that wily old snake dick demon. But if you die, I'm replacing you with your buddy Enkidu. He's my new son now. On the way to the cedar forest, Gilgamesh has some more bad dreams. And all of a sudden he starts not wanting to go. But then now Enkidu manages to explain away his dreams as good omens and says they should keep going, right? Uh, which is weird because he was a guy trying to talk him out of going earlier. And now he's trying to talk him in to keep going forward. Is he trying to be G-Mommy's new favorite son? I don't know. Finally, the two heroes confront Humbaba and another great battle breaks out. Now they're both fighting Snake Dick. How's that happening? I don't know. Enkidu is really all in on this quest now. Gilgamesh offers the monster his own sisters as wives and concubines in order to distract the monster into giving away his seven layers of armor. And finally, with the help of the winds sent by the sun god, uh, Shamash, Humbaba is defeated. And I gotta say, Snake Dick sounds gullible, right? He starts off fierce. Ah, I'm gonna tear you into a million pieces, Gilgamesh! And then uh, Gilgamesh is like, oh, no, 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 wait, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. What if instead of that, hold on, what if, what if you traded me some of your powerful armor that keeps me from being able to kill you for the opportunity to snake dick my hottest sister? And then the demon's like, oh, I don't know. Seems like a trick, but interesting. You promise? You promise I can have one of your sisters? And he's like, yeah, I promise. And he's like, okay, then I'll give you a piece of armor that will ensure I would win this fight if I just kept it on knowing that I get to sleep with your sister now, but you're not trying to trick me, right? And then Gilgamesh has like his fingers crossed behind his back. No, I'm not trying to trick you. After winning the battle, the monster now begs Gilgamesh for his life. And Gilgamesh at first pities the creature. He pities the fool. Despite Enkidu's, uh, Enkidu's practical advice to kill the beast. Humbaba then curses them both before Gilgamesh finally kills it. 
What happens with the curse? I don't know. Just a curse. The vague curse. The two heroes then cut down a huge cedar tree and Enkidu uses it to make a massive door for the gods, which he floats down the river. And this is apparently symbolic of Enkidu fully committing to the Sumerian gods now. He's fully civilized, or so say some experts. Or maybe when he wins a fight, he just wants to make a fucking door and float it down a river because it's fun for him. Who knows what's going on in this crazy tale? Sometime later, the goddess Ishtar, goddess of love and war, daughter of the sky god Anu, makes sexual advances to Gilgamesh now in his quest. But he rejects her because he didn't like how she treated some of her previous lovers. Weird. A little bit hypocritical for a serial rapist to complain about how she's treating previous dudes. Surprising to me. Maybe he wasn't into her because she was too into him. It was too much consent to turn him on. This offends Ishtar, uh, and she now insists, insists that her father send the bull of heaven to avenge Gilgamesh's rejection, threatening to raise the dead also if he doesn't comply. Now, who is the bull of heaven? Based on Sumerian imagery and text, he's an abnormally large bull who is more ferocious than average bulls. Kind of a letdown. I feel like after killing Snake Dick, an extra big bull, you know, it's not really going to be that scary. Uh, the beast brings with it a great drought and plague of the land. So not just a big bull, uh, some kind of dark wizard bull. Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, this time without divine help, they slay this beast and now offer its heart to Shamash, throwing the bull's hindquarters in the face of the outraged Ishtar. Just fuck you, Ishtar. Not a real tough wizard bull. Uh, the city of Uruk celebrates this great victory, but Enkidu has himself a bad dream, which the gods now decide to punish him for the killing of the bull of heaven and Humbaba. And now he gets cursed. Why did he get cursed? Right? He was just kind of around when, you know, they threw the hindquarters into the face of this outraged god. So Enkidu now then curses the door he made for the gods. And he curses a trapper he met once that told him to go see Gilgamesh. And he curses the prostitute that Gilgamesh set him the day he became human. The story goes hard on curses. Curses that are not really explained in terms of what the curses do. Enkidu soon regrets his curses when Shamash speaks from heaven and points out how unfair Enkidu is being. Uh, also weird. What kind of God is this? Hey, buddy, stop with the curses. You're being unfair. He's like, okay. He points out that Gilgamesh will become but a shadow of his former self if Enkidu is to die from some cursing. Nevertheless, the curse takes hold. And the day after... Uh, Enkidu becomes, uh, day after day, he becomes more and more ill. So I guess, you know, Shamash did curse him as well. It's hard to keep track of all the curses. Enkidu dies. And uh, then he describes his descent into the horrific dark underworld, the house of dust, where the dead wear feathers like birds and eat clay. Gilgamesh is devastated by Enkidu's death, offers gifts to the gods in the hope that he might be allowed to walk beside Enkidu in the underworld. He orders the people of Uruk uh, from the lowest farmer to the highest temple priest to mourn Enkidu's death, orders statues of him to be built in the city. Gilgamesh is so full of grief and sorrow over his friend that he refuses to leave Enkidu's side or allow his corpse to be buried until six days and seven nights after his death when maggots begin to fall from his body. He's so upset, he doesn't rape anybody for a whole week. He's too sad. Gilgamesh is now determined to avoid Enkidu's fate and he decides to make the perilous journey to visit Yunap, oh boy, Yunapushitum and his wife. That's a very tricky word to say. Maybe you can say it. it's U-T-N-A-P-I-S-H-T-I-M. So maybe if I studied only that word for a week. Uh, the, uh, this guy and his wife were the only humans to have survived the great flood who were granted immortality by the gods in the hope, and he visits them, he wants to visit them in the hope of discovering the secret of everlasting life. He doesn't want to die. Finally, he seems a little bit relatable in the story. 
The ageless uh, Yuna Pusham and his wife now reside in a beautiful country in another world, Dilmun. And Gilgamesh travels far to the east in search of them, crossing great rivers and oceans and mountain passes and grappling and slaying monstrous mountain lions, bears, and other beasts. So much slain. If it's not curses or raping, it's slain. Eventually, he comes to the twin peaks of Mount Mashu at the end of the earth, from where the sun rises from the other world, the gate of which is guarded by two terrible scorpion dudes. Fuck yeah! These monsters, not as cool as Snake Dick, are at least cooler than Big Bull. The scorpion people allow Gilgamesh to proceed when he convinces them of his divinity and his desperation. Okay. And he travels for 12 leagues to the dark tunnel where the sun travels every night. The world at the end of the tunnel is a bright wonderland full of trees with leaves of jewels. Those are sweet-ass trees. The first person Gilgamesh meets is uh, in this new land is the winemaker goddess Siduri, who initially believes he's a murderer from his disheveled appearance and attempts to dissuade him from his quest. Can't have any murderers loitering around the sun tunnel. Eventually, this god sends him to Urshanabi, the ferryman who must help him cross the sea to the island where Yunapushitam lives, navigating the waters of death, of which the slightest touch means instant death. The exact kind of water you do not want to use to fill up, say, a water park with. Then he meets Urshanabi, or uh, when he meets Urshanabi, the ferryman appears to be surrounded by a company of stone giants, which Gilgamesh promptly kills without uh, thinking, of, you know, finding out if they're peaceful or not. He thinks they're hostile and just immediately kills him. He doesn't wait, uh, you know, and then this is a big fuck up. Uh, Gilgamesh tells the ferryman his story, asking for help, and then Ur- Urshanabi explains that he just destroyed the sacred stones. Those giants were piles of sacred stones, and we needed them to ferry the boat safely across the waters of death with. Oh, Gilgamesh, you ruined it. Uh, the only way these two can now cross is if Gilgamesh cuts down 120 trees and fashions them into punting poles so they can cross the waters by using a new pole each time and by using his garment as a sail. Uh, these punts are big sticks used to push a small boat along in a shallow canal or river. So good thing there's a forest nearby for Miguel's trees. So Gilgamesh cuts down all the trees, uses his skirt as a sail, I guess. Finally, they reach the island of Dilmun where the uh, immortal, you, uh, you now push it to him sees that there is someone else in the boat and asks Gilgamesh, who, like, who he is. Gilgamesh tells him his story and asks him for help. But you, you not push it to him, remind, uh, reprimands him because he knows that fighting the fate of humans is futile and ruins the joys in life. And Gilgamesh now demands of you, God, I'm just gonna call him you. Gilgamesh now demands of you that he explain to him how the two men are different and you tells him the story of how he survived the great flood. You recounts how a great storm and flood was brought into the world by the god en- Enlil, who wanted to destroy all of mankind for the noise and confusion they brought to the world. I get it. I have some, I have some new neighbors that never, ever tell their very noisy kids who are always playing out in the backyard to ever shut the fuck up. And sometimes I wouldn't mind some god destroying humanity if that's what it took to get them to be quiet. Uh, and then there's Aya, the god of wisdom, now warns you about this great storm, advising him to build a ship in readiness and load it onto the onto it his treasures, his family, and the seeds of all living things. The rains come as promised, right? That's the big flood story. And the whole world is covered with water, killing everything except for you and his, his boat and his wife and the seeds of all the living things in it. The boat comes to rest on the tip of a mountain of Nasir, where they wait for the waters to subside, releasing first a dove, then a, sh- then a swallow, then a raven to check for dry land. Then you make sacrifices and libations to the gods. And uh, although Enlil is angry that someone had survived his great flood, uh, Ea advises him to make peace. And I wonder what animals he sacrificed. Probably some unicorns and dragons. That's why we don't have any more. Enlil now blesses 
you and his wife and grants them everlasting life. Fuck yeah, bro. Immortality. And he takes them to live in the land of the gods on the island of Dilmun. So it's a great day for them. That's a solid day when you get to be immortal. Now, despite his initial reservations about why the god should give Gilgamesh the same honor that he got, the hero of the flood, you does reluctantly decide to offer Gilgamesh a chance of immortality. He challenges Gilgamesh to stay awake for six days and seven nights to earn it. But Gilgamesh falls asleep before he's even done talking. Fucking Gilgamesh. When he wakes up after a seven-day nap, uh, this you ridicule, ridicules his failure, sends him back to Uruk, along with his ferryman, uh, Urshanabi, who's now in exile. As they leave, uh, or while they're leaving, though, <laughs> uh, Yuna uh, Pushitim's wife asks her husband to have mercy on Gilgamesh for his long journey and tells Gilgamesh of a plant that grows at the very bottom of the ocean that will make him young again, some immortality plant. He's been given another chance. The story is so fucking weird and random. Gilgamesh now obtains the plant by binding stones to his feet, as one does to allow him to walk in the bottom of the ocean. He plans to use the flower to rejuvenate the old men of his city of Uruk and then also use it on himself. Unfortunately, he's careless. And he sets the plant on the shore of a lake while he takes a bath. And then while he's taking a bath, fucking snake comes along and takes the plant, eats it. And then loses his old skin and thus is reborn. That's why snakes shed their skin now. How fucking dumb is Gilgamesh? This guy's one of the dumbest heroes ever. He's been given the plant of immortality after fucking up another chance to become immortal if he could just stay awake. And then he just leaves along the shore while he's taking a bath instead of, you know, never letting it go until he gets home. And Gilgamesh learns an important lesson here. He says, life which you look for, you will never find. For when the gods created man, they let death be his share and life withheld in their own hands. Okay. So, you know, I, I see the message. You know, you gotta appreciate life because it doesn't last very long. Gilgamesh weeps at having failed at both opportunities to obtain immortality. And he returns to the massive walls of his own city of Uruk, a wreck of a god king. And then years later, he dies. And the people of Uruk, Uruk mourn his passing, knowing they will never see a king as good as him ever again. Kind of a bummer that he was their best king. He's a rapey moron who couldn't properly guard a plant or stay awake long enough to become immortal. Also, how similar to the biblical story of Noah's Ark and the flood was that story? Coincidence? Mm. Uh, many religious scholars do not think so. A lot of religious scholars think that both the Sumerians and the ancient Hebrews, uh, there was a, a, the same source they were both influenced by, some you know, hidden source that's never been you know, uncovered in archaeological digs. Others think that the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh definitely influenced parts of the Old Testament, including the flood story, because it was written roughly a thousand years before the Old Testament, and archaeological digs have found fragments of the Epic uh, of Gilgamesh all around ancient Israel. It was clearly uh, in wide circulation when the Old Testament was written. I mean, obviously, it's such a good story, Many scholars believe the Epic of Gilgamesh was a substantial influence on Homer's The Odyssey as well. Uh, and there's more to this awesome story, but don't worry, not very much more. Thank God. Uh, the 12th and final tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh is apparently unconnected with the previous ones. It's like a sequel written after the first 11. It tells an alternate uh, alternative legend from earlier in the story when Enkidu is still alive, right? You can't not have a sequel when the first story is such a fucking obvious banger. In the new tale, Gilgamesh complains to Enkidu that he has lost some objects given to him by the goddess Ishtar. He dropped them fucking around in the underworld. One underworld. Of course he dropped them. Classic Gilgamesh. Enkidu offers to bring them back for him and the delighted Gilgamesh tells Enkidu what he must do and what he must not do in the underworld in order to be sure of coming back. And then Enkidu sets off and then he forgets everything that was told to him. He forgets all the important advice. And the result is he gets trapped in the underworld because he's also an idiot. This epic was written about two complete fucking morons. They're good at killing demons and bulls and nothing else. 
Gilgamesh prays to the gods to return his friend. And although uh, uh, Enlil and Suin do not even bother to reply, uh, Aya and Shamash decide to help. Shamash cracks a hole in the earth. Enkidu jumps out of it, whether as a ghost or as a regular dude, it's not really made clear. And then Gilgamesh asks Enkidu some questions about what he saw in the underworld. And, you know, that's that's it. So, okay. So in some ways, I guess, you know, look at the story. Not a lot has changed with humanity over the last four to 5,000 years. We still really, really want to know what happens to us when we die. I like that part of the story. We want answers, you know, and we still worship a lot of pretty interesting gods. And there's another old text called the Enuma Elish that tells the story of the later Babylonian creation epic, which borrows heavily from the Sumerians, often used to propel the ancient astronaut myths. Uh, I'll very briefly summarize this one so we can move it along to the wackadoodle portion of today's show. This next myth tells the story of the great gods Marduk's victory over the forces of chaos and his establishment of order at the creation of the world. Marduk was a new supreme god created, added to the old Sumerian gods during Babylonian times. Uh, Marduk was the patron god of Babylon, the Babylonian king of the gods, who presided over justice, compassion, healing, regeneration, magic, sweet fairness, although he's also sometimes referenced as a storm god and also as an agricultural deity. Uh, they change their roles a lot over time, you know, because uh, these civilizations lasted a long time and because it's all completely made up nonsense. Uh, Marduk was said to be the son of the god of wisdom, Enki, also known as Ea, who is, who is himself considered a creator god in some myths. Marduk would eventually become the supreme god of the Mesopotamian Pantheon, or Pantheon for the entire region associated with the planet Jupiter. It seems that Marduk may have been the inspiration for the Greek god of Zeus, also associated with the planet Jupiter, who later became the Roman god, Jupiter. Uh, like Zeus, Marduk is a sky god. He is of a younger generation of gods. They both battled to create order, both overthrew their parents to triumph. Clearly, the Sumerians influenced the Akkadians, some of whom became the Babylonians, who then morphed into other Persian cultures, who then influenced Greek culture, which then influenced Roman culture. It is very cool to see it go back, you know, to the beginning or the beginning that we know of written wise. The Enuma Elish tells the story of Marduk's rise to power. In the beginning of time, the universe was undifferentiated, swirling chaos, which separated into sweet, fresh water known as Apsu, the male principle, and salty, bitter water known as, oh, I didn't have the pronunciation guide written next to it. This time, uh, Tiamat, I think, the female principle. I'll say it correct later. These two deities then gave birth to other gods. The major deities in the Sumerian pantheon included An, uh, Anu, the god of the heavens, Enlil, the god of wisdom and storm, Enki, the god of water and human culture, uh, Ninhursag, the goddess of fertility in the earth, Utu, the god of the sun and justice, his father Nana, god of the moon. During the Akkadian period and afterward, Inanna, the goddess of sex, beauty, and warfare was widely venerated across Sumer and appeared in many myths, including the famous story of her descent into the underworld. Uh, the majority of Sumerian deities belong to a classification called, here we go, the Anuna or uh, Anuna, offspring of An, whereas seven deities, including Enlil and Inanna, belong to a group of, quote, underworld judges known as, yes, the Anunnaki, a word I first heard some wackadoodles mispronounce, and I mispronounced it for several years, as you're sure you're not surprised, that I've I often pronounced as the Anunnaki. Uh, in the earliest Sumerian writings about them, which come from the post-Akkadian period before the Sumerians were completely assimilated into the cultures that would become Assyrian and Babylonian, the Anunnaki are deities in the pantheon, descendants of An, the supreme sky god, god of the heavens, and Ki, god of the heavens and the goddess of earth. And their primary function is to decree the fates of humanity. Illuminati, those damn space lizards controlling our fate, 
manipulating us from the shadows. And the introduction of the Anunnaki leads us directly to the sci-fi and or wackadoodle portion of this week's suck. Uh, remember earlier how I talked about how no one knows exactly where the Sumerians came from, how linguistically they weren't related to other cultures in the area at that time? Uh, ancient astronaut theory has an answer for that mystery. Space? Hello? The Sumerians were created by hu uh, humanity-controlling aliens. Now we're digging into the ancient astronaut theory goodness. Uh, David Hatcher Childers again. Uh, can I just say that the ancient astronaut theory is is much more than a theory? It's, it's really more of a fact when you look at all the evidence that me and other uh, world-renowned experts— uh, uh, David, you realize that almost none of the experts who show up on the History Channel's Ancient Aliens actually have a degree in anything space or archaeology-related, right? And, and that you don't have a degree in literally anything at all? Uh, I, do, I just don't see what bearing that has on the truth of giants, uh, Atlantis, ancient astronauts, uh, Lemurians. Uh, David, just go wait down the hall, please. Uh, okay, fine. If that's the way uh, you want to play it, uh, go Grizz. Uh, there are two main men behind the story, uh, behind this theory, excuse me, Zechariah Stitchin. I always want to add a T every single time to his name. I want to say Stitchin because of the word stitch instead of sitch. So if I say Stitchin, excuse me, I have to fight it every single time I say his name. Uh, Zechariah Stitchin and Eric Von Daniken. Uh, we've already mentioned Stitchin. Uh, we'll look at both here. Almost all of the root claims on the popular ongoing TV show, Ancient Aliens, come from these two ding-dongs. I mean, important researchers. The ancient astronauts concept that uh, intelligent extraterrestrial beings visited Earth and made contact with humans in ancient times, giving Sumerians and ancient Egyptians, Olmecs, etc., futuristic secrets, first showed up as a science fiction concept. Of course it did, because it is science fiction. Uh, Edison's Conquest of Mars, a novel published in 1898, early sci-fi novel written by American astronomer and early science fiction author Garrett Putnam Service, a man who influenced H.P. Lovecraft a bit, is perhaps the first uh, author, this is the first story uh, to feature ancient astronauts who have a major influence on early human civilizations. Over half a century later, the idea is then proposed in earnest, so repackaged as an actual, for sure, real thing that definitely happened by Harold T. Wilkins in 1954. Harold Wilkins was a British journalist known for his books on treasure hunting, uh, pseudo-historic claims about Atlantis, South America, hidden civilizations, uh, he was seen by his journalist peers as a ding-dong. Wilkins, who had no formal scientific or historical education, wrote a bunch of sci-fi, like service, but unlike him, presented it as fact instead of science fiction. And then here we go. Uh, he writes about hollow earth, secret races of humans, uh, all, all sorts of Madame Helena Blavatsky theosophical nonsense shit. Uh, he wrote the kind of shit that would go on to heavily influence British conspiracist David Icke and the David Ikes of the world later. And then in the 1960s, the ancient astronaut hypothesis receives some consideration as a serious possibility, mainly due to a popular book written by Eric Von Daniken. Many critics would emerge the 1970s, uh, discrediting Von Daniken's claims, but many of those who love Von Daniken's book uh, don't ever read or hear about that criticism. And uh, and sorry if I'm uh, mispronouncing Daniken. I think it's Daniken. I read a lot of stuff about him. Uh, and then the History Channel brought all his uh, discredited ideas back in 2009 and then repackaged them into a hit show, Ancient Aliens, and then presented them again as legitimate ideas, which they are not. Uh, by 2009, History Channel execs seem to have realized that, that this kind of stuff got a lot more ratings and made them a lot more money than fact-based documentaries about subjects like World War I or building the U.S. Transcontinental Railroad. 
Uh, if you look back, the History Channel stopped giving a shit about history around the same time that the Learning Channel stopped caring about education, right? The rise of reality TV, cheaper production, better ratings, and uh, who cares about you know our original stances? Uh, the book I referenced, the first, the first really popular book on the idea of ancient astronauts was Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods, Unsolved Mysteries of the Past. First published in 1968, uh, originally written in German. And Daniken, born and raised in Switzerland, has zero formal education at all when it comes to ancient civilizations. No one in the academic world takes this dude seriously at all. I really can't stress that enough. So who was this guy, is this guy? Born in Switzerland in 1935, he became obsessed with the notion of extraterrestrials visiting Earth as a kid. And while going to Catholic school, he rejected the church teachings on creationism in favor of this ancient alien slash ancient astronaut type belief system that he started formulating early on. Uh, he didn't do well in Catholic school. Uh, he dropped out uh, before graduating to work at a Swiss hotel. And while working at the Swiss hotel, uh, 1964, when he was 29, he wrote his first book called Did Our Ancestors Have a Visit from Space? Then he got arrested for theft. Not long after that, then he moved to Egypt. Then down in Egypt, he gets arrested for theft again, steals some jewelry, gets in prison for nine months, sent back to Switzerland. Gets another job at a hotel, the Hotel Rosenhugel in uh, Davos. And that is where he wrote The Chariots of the Gods, Unsolved Mysteries of the Past. For fuck's sake, the Q source for ancient astronaut theory is a dude who dropped out of Catholic school, got arrested for theft twice, got kicked out of Egypt before writing the book that launched the belief system that led to the Ancient Aliens TV show during his smoke breaks while working the fucking front desk of a hotel. <laughs> so weird, the team of archaeologists and astronomers did not come up with this theory. Crazy. There was just an alien-obsessed hotel clerk. And I wonder how many ancient astronaut theory believers know about this. I'm going to say less than 5%. Danikin's basic totally pulled out of his ass idea is that many of the ancient civilizations, such as the ancient Sumerians, were given high technology and knowledge by aliens who basically uh, were welcomed as gods. He points to evidence, and I use that term very loosely, all over the world. Uh, von Danikin uh, suggests that tons and tons of ancient structures, like the pyramids of Giza, Stonehenge, the Moai of Easter Island, those big stone heads, uh, and their artifacts appear to reflect more sophisticated technological knowledge than uh, you know is known or presumed to have existed at the times they were manufactured. Von Daniken maintains that these artifacts were produced either by extraterrestrial visitors or by humans who learned the necessary knowledge from ETs. And he proposes, you know, or proposes that that humans could not have come up with these advances alone. I find it funny that Von Daniken didn't seem to know that the Moai were built between 1250 and 1500 CE. Those big stone heads, uh, stone heads, <laughs> uh, in uh, east on Easter Island, they're not ancient. Uh, they're they're just over you know 500 years old. Not you know between 2500 and th uh, you know they weren't built between 2500 and 3000 BC like Stonehenge, Stonehenge, which is around 5000 years ago. Sorry, my mouth is mushier than normal. So let me get this straight, Dan. Again, aliens came down to England 5000 years ago to help those people build Stonehenge. Then they come back. Uh, 500 to 750 years ago, over 4,000 years after their first visit to Easter Island to help them build some stone heads. And when they come back to Easter Island, they just what? Just look at how advanced things are in Europe and China and are like, ah, they're good. They don't need our help anymore. Uh, that's fine. Like, why wouldn't they visit anyone else on the return visit? Because it never happened. Like, I'm a, and I'm a believer in aliens, but not this. This makes no sense. How could ancient civilizations create impressive and massive monuments well, for one thing, they had a fuck ton of free labor and also nothing but time to finish them. And I could go over, you know, uh, 
no aliens needed, very earthly construction techniques, how they were very possible in the times these cultures were alive, but that would take another half an episode to break down. For today, and I have talked about it in some previous episodes, but for today, just know that educated researchers and accredited archaeologists have debunked these ideas over and over and over again. But fans of Von Daniken's ideas don't care that they're debunked because these ideas are super fun to entertain. Von Daniken's books on the topic have all been bestsellers with over 70 million copies sold as of 2017. So, you know, I'm sure millions more since, despite an extremely negative reception from the academic community, like the most negative, several counter-argument books have been written by experts demonstrating the many, many fallacies of Von Daniken's research that, of course, don't sell nearly as well, uh, including books called like Space Gods Revealed by Ronald Story, which features an intro by Carl Sagan, uh, Crash Go the Chariots written by Clifford Wilson. Wilson could not be more accredited in this area. He became the director of Aus the Australian Institute of, Techno of Archaeology, also personally worked on Sumerian archaeological, you know, uh, sites, got a PhD from South Carolina State University, where he was a professor in psycholinguistics, has numerous other degrees. He's a lot smarter than I am, a lot smarter than Eric Von Daniken. He doesn't buy it, and neither do his peers. Uh, there's even some evidence that our recent suck subject, H.P. Lovecraft, and his Cthulhu myth mythos, mythos, uh, <laughs> mythos, God damn it. Too many, there's too many tough words in this. Uh, was a big part of the inspiration for Daniken. He wrote fiction, presented it as nonfiction. Now, I'm now, now I have to, it's going to drive me crazy. So before I even go further, I had to do this before. I messed up that one word so many times. I am actually going to stop looking at my notes and pull up, um, mythos, which, which one is it? Too many alternate pronunciations of this word. And it is... Mythos. Mythos. That's where it was. It was the myth that was throwing me. Mythos. Fuck yeah. That's what the dictionary says. Mythos. Okay. Ha. Feeling a little bit better. Too many pronunciations for a reader, not a watcher, to constantly memorize. Uh, the other main pillar of the ancient astronaut theory is old Zechariah Sitchin. Uh, he really connect, connected the Sumerians to the Anunnaki. His most influential book was published in 1976. It's called The Twelfth Planet which is the first book of his Earth Chronicles collection. Uh, Sitchin attributed the creation of the ancient Sumerian culture to the Anunnaki, which were not the children of the god On, like we already learned, but were actually a race of extraterrestrials from a planet called Neptune called Nibiru, also known as uh, Planet X, also known to many astronomers as not real. Uh, Nibiru has been linked to NASA by various bloggers because of so many claimed connections, NASA officials put out an official statement saying it's not real. Zechariah Sitchin disagrees. The man with no formal education when it comes to the ancient Sumerians asserted that Sumerian mythology suggests that his hypothetical and undiscovered and not real planet of Nibiru is in an elongated 3,600-year-long 3, elliptical orbit around the sun. He says this planet comes around every 3,600 years, which according to Sitchin lines up with important ages in human history. Like Von Daniken, uh, Sitchin's books have sold millions of copies, have been translated in numerous languages around the world, uh, they've been read by maniacs like Dwight York, cult leader of the Nawabian Nation of Moors. We sucked a few weeks ago. This is the kind of shit he leaned on when uh, going through the final extraterrestrial phase of his ever-changing cult. Uh, like with Von Daniken, no one who knows anything about the actual Sumerians thinks Sitchin's ideas are worth a shit. He's been criticized heavily for extremely flawed methodology and way the fuck off mistranslations of ancient texts, as well as for incorrect as astronomical and scientific claims. And a lot of people in the know think that he pulled a lot of these theories out of his ass. And we'll go over some of these in a minute. Uh, first, remember that this guy's knowledge of Sumerian is 100% self-taught. <laughs> uh, he says that while working as an executive for a shipping company in his off hours, 
He taught himself Sumerian cuneiform and then visited several archaeological sites. And a lot of his critics think, you know, he's lying. <laughs> if he went to any archaeological sites, archaeological sites, it was like as a tourist, but not as part of an archaeological team. And I, and I love like that he taught himself how to read these tablets because that guy, Sybil, we talked about the most accomplished Sumerian linguist in the world. He didn't figure out all of Sumerian and he dedicated like 50 years of his life to it. And this guy, like in his off hours, working as a shipping exec, is like, nah, I fucking knocked it out. Um, some experts who have critiqued Sitchin's Sumerian translations think that he actually doesn't know a single word of Sumerian. Like he has literally no idea <laughs> what the cuneiforms say. According to Sitchin, the planet Nibiru, whose name he replaced with Marduk in Babylonian legends, uh, collided catastrophically with, there we go, Tiamat. This is a word as I said earlier I needed the pronunciation guide for. A Babylonian goddess, which he considers to be another planet once located between Mars and Jupiter that's no longer around. Okay. This collision supposedly formed our planet Earth, the asteroid belt, and the comets, and it created the oceans. Now this fucking shipping exec, uh, who also didn't study astronomy, has just rewritten astronomy. A shipping exec and a hotel clerk putting on their Indiana Jones hats and thinking they found some secret knowledge equivalent to like the Ark of the Covenant, these fucking clowns. Okay, Sitchin states that when struck by one of uh, planet Nibiru's moons, Tiamat split in two. And then on a second pass, Nibiru itself struck the broken fragments and one half of Tiamat became the asteroid belt. The second half, struck again by one of Nibiru's moons, was pushed into a new orbit and became Earth. That is not based on a correct translation of any ancient text, say, any expert who has weighed in on it. It's just a bunch of made-up gobbledygook. It's a guy who can't read Sumerian, saying that he re re can read Sumerian, and, uh, you know, and, and read the Babylonian cuneiforms and just making up a bunch of shit. Uh, Sitchin also speculated that Pluto was originally a satellite of Saturn, but Nibiru's gravity fucked it up, sending it to the outer solar system, given uh, the body its peculiar orbital path, intersecting the orbit of Neptune. Um, you know who doesn't believe that? Uh, any astronomers. Th this has the credibility of flat Earth theory. According to Sitchin, Nibiru is called the 12th planet because he claimed the Sumerian gods given conception of the solar system, counted all eight planets plus Pluto, the sun, the moon, and Nibiru was home of a technologically advanced human-like extraterrestrial race called the Anunnaki in Sumerian myth, whose Sitchin states are also called the Nephilim in Genesis. The Nephilim in Genesis are not aliens in the Bible. They're giants. Uh, some of the shitheels that God wanted to kill with the Great Flood, uh, they're giants that there is literally no archaeological evidence for, by the way, at all. Uh, David again here. Uh, can I at least promote my new A and G show? Uh, maybe it's giants here. Uh, no. Yeah, but yeah, but what if the Anunnaki are alien giants? I mean, just because you're a giant doesn't mean you're not an alien, right? Uh, no. Yeah, that's true, David. Actually, and you know, and so are ancient aliens. Ancient aliens also true. Alien ancient uh, truthers unite. Uh, go Grizz! All right. Hopefully, that's all for David today. Uh, back to another wackadoodle. Uh, Sitchin wrote that the Anunnaki evolved after Nibiru entered the inner solar system. And they first arrived on Earth probably 40, 450,000 years ago, looking for minerals, especially gold, which they found and mined in Africa. Sitchin states that these gods were really just rank and file workers of a colonial expedition to Earth from planet Nibiru. So, you know, 450,000 years ago, this planet that, that no one thinks is real comes by Earth, and there's aliens. They're like, ah, we're low on gold. And then, you know, some of their alien overlord, their bosses are like, well, if I can go there, go there and get that gold. And they're like, okay. And they get in their space shuttles and they go to Earth. According to Sitchin, Enki, the Sumerian god of water and human culture, who was really an Anunnaki, 
suggested that to relieve the Anunnaki who are now on earth mining this gold, some of whom, whom are mutinied or mutant, have mutinied over their dissatisfaction with their working conditions. Like how the fuck would he know about that? Uh, that primitive workers should be created by genetically engineering, uh, you know, slaves to replace them in gold mines. And they made these slaves by infusing extraterrestrial genes into the genes of Homo erectus. And this is all just fucking stupid. Homo erectus existed from 2 million years ago till about 100,000 years ago. Maybe we're still around uh, 50,000 years ago. The Sumerians didn't start writing shit down until 3,500 BCE. How would they know about this Homo erectus breeding experiment? How would anyone know? Right? Because the written evidence doesn't go back nearly that far. It, this supposedly took place 45,000 to 95,000 years before anyone started writing anything, like the, like the Epic of Gilgamesh. That is a long time to play the telephone game. I don't think that the uh, message showing up in 3500 BC is going to be anything close to the original message that was laid out like 95,000 years earlier. According to Sitchin, ancient inscriptions report that the human civilization in Sumer Mesopotamia was set up under the guidance of these gods and human kingship was inaugurated to provide intermediaries, intermediaries between mankind and the Anunnaki, creating the whole divine right of kings doctrine. And that's the whole Illuminati craziness where there's still Anunnaki around. They're fucking living in, in tunnels under the earth. You know, these aliens, are just they kind of hide. It gets all morphed. I'll mention how it gets morphed a little bit into Lizard with David Icke here soon. But, and then there's like these kings, this Babylonian brotherhood that evolves. And that becomes like the kings of Europe and the Medici. And they're all really Anunnaki people. And then many of our leaders today are lizard people. And that's how you get to fucking people thinking that Justin Bieber and Katy Perry are lizards. <laughs> it all starts with this preposterous nonsense. Uh, and, and by the way, he has this timeline so far off, right? The civilization in Sumerian, uh, you know, the Sumerian civilization didn't get going until, you know, long after Homo erectus was gone. Ah, uh, just, ah, uh, ah. Also, interesting to me that the words reptile, lizard, and reptilian, they don't come up in Sitch Sitchin's books. Uh, at least not his big one, the 12th planet. They also don't show up in a book of his greatest teachings. I use the word greatest very loosely. Compiled by his daughter, Janet, published in 2005 or 2015, excuse me, called the Anunnaki Chronicles. So when did the Anunnaki become the lizard Illuminati that British conspiracist David Icke loves to ramble about that so many people on YouTube like to talk about now? Icke himself seems to be the main person responsible for popularizing the extraterrestrial reptilian spin on the Anunnaki who started enslaving humanity in the early years of the Sumerians. He seemed to have woven the idea of reptilians into the Anunnaki ancient astronauts theory most directly. There could be a few other people this shit is so fucking hard to research, I will say. <laughs> I spent two to three times as much time as on a normal suck researching this because there's so much wackadoodle nonsense and it's so poorly footnoted. <laughs> it's just, it, and it's so crazy. It's hard to first get your head around it and then be like, well, where did they come up with these ideas? It's actually thought that Ike built his reptilian ideas off of sci-fi authors like H.P. Lovecraft's buddy, Robert E. Howard creator of Conan the Barbarian. This is so random. Michael Barkin, a poli-sci professor at Syracuse University who's looked into a lot of this, thinks that the idea of a reptilian conspiracy originated in the Cole universe uh, when some serpent men appeared in a Conan universe story called The Shadow Kingdom, first published in Weird Tales in 1929, the publication that launched Lovecraft's career. The Shadow Kingdom was the first story based around Cole of Atlantis, so actually, I misspoke. It wasn't quite the Conan the Barbarian universe. It was a character Howard would later rework into Conan the Barbarian. Yikes. So many suck first topic connections being made here today. Uh, there are so many beliefs that come from Sitchin. It, it could take fucking years 
to go through them. It reminds it's very much like David Icke. I've talked about David like David Icke a lot on The Secret Suck. And he just writes so much shit. He's just like a bullshit factory. Just every year pumping out a new 800 page book, it seems, full of like, you know, 80 topics that are hard to understand because they're nonsensical. <laughs> you can just get lost. This is how people get lost and end up in like weird, like QAnon cult type shit. Um, no need to do that. I'm not going to go into all Sitchin stuff, but I want to toss out a, toss out a few more examples that pertain to the Sumerians. Uh, Sitchin believed, past tense with him, because he died in uh, 2010 at the age of 90, that fallout from nuclear weapons used during a war between factions of the extraterrestrials is the evil wind described in the Sumerian text Lament, Lament for Ur, that destroyed Ur around 2000 BCE. Stitchin states that the exact year it was destroyed is 2024 BCE. It, it does not say that. No academics think that. The actual text describes the goddess Ningal who weeps for her city after pleading with the god Enlil to call back a destructive storm. Interspersed with the goddess Wailings uh, are other sections, possibly of different origin and composition, that describe the ghost town that Ur had become. Uh, they recount the wrath of Enlil's storm and invoke protection of the god Nana against future calamities. So it's, they're just talking about like a storm. Like there's, you know, there's been plenty of big storms. Uh, crazy for Sitchin to think that Sumerian theological stories also uh, were meant to be taken literally. Like, I wonder if he also believed Gilgamesh actually walked around in the underworld and that he actually fought and killed snake dick demon. Uh, Sitchin says that his research coincides with many biblical texts. Excuse me, that these biblical texts uh, come originally from Sumerian writings. Many ancient astronaut theorists believe that aliens have had multiple nuclear wars. I uh, believe that when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed in the Bible, for example, that was a display of some alien nuclear rage. Uh, Sitchin also said in the ancient text of Sumeria, we have descriptions of these beings descending from the sky called the Anunnaki. The term Anunnaki means those who from the heavens came. Not true. The word Anunnaki, according to people who actually know how to translate Sumerian, it means princely seed or princely blood. That's right, space lizards. We have the blood of kings running through our veins. Hail the space lizards. Knowledge of Nimrod. A little, little nod to the secret suck. Okay, now back. Uh, the Sumerian idea is that the Anunnaki were direct creations of Anu, regarded as the father and the king of the gods. Another expert in Sumerian languages, an author of a website, I love this, just uh, called Sitchin is Wrong, uh, named Michael Heiser, wrote, you'll often read, especially in the writings of Zechariah Sitchin, that the Anunnaki means something like they who come from heaven, or some other description that makes them sound like aliens or extraterrestrials. There is not a source on the planet by any Sumerian scholar that would agree with that definition. It's not a difficult term. I personally don't think that Sitchin knew Sumerian at all, because if you're going to get a term associated with a very, with the very group of important, or with a very important group of deities wrong, I have to wonder what else you're going to get wrong. So dropping the academic hammer on old Sitchin, telling him to take his poophole ideas and stuff in his loophole. One of the most repeated sentiments from Sitchin's work is the idea that the aliens came here to mine gold. And this idea will get transformed by David Icke into this crazy belief that aliens, reptilian aliens, use gold to fuel their magical ability to shapeshift and that they shapeshift to hide in plain sight among us as politicians, celebrities, you know, Katy Perry, Justin Bieber, uh, Obama, uh, wealthy elite, etc., the Illuminati, the, the lizard Illuminati, they disguise themselves so they can manipulate and control us and they manipulate and control us to make sure the world is always full of war and pain and misery. And they do that because the reptilians, uh, they feed off of our pain and fear. Literally, that's what the Anunnaki eat. Wake up, sheeple. Can't you see the truth? It's also obvious if your third eye is open. Open your loophole. Op open your poop hole. Maybe that's the right eye. Uh, Sitchin originally put forward the notion that the Anunnaki needed to create a slave race, us, 
to mine this gold to help fix their depleted atmosphere on their planet Nibiru. So like, and where does that come from in the Sumerian or any other text? It doesn't come from anything other than his, his brain. So, you know, they need to mine the gold, uh, turn into atomic dust and repair their atmosphere with it. And then that can be used to reflect the sun from their heavily, uh, you know, industrialized planet. And again, there's, there's no link to any Sumerian text for any of this. Uh, interesting to note that Sitchin doesn't even give a place in the Sumerian text to justify this notion that they needed gold for their atmosphere. He just says in the, follow, uh, the following in his book, The Wars of Gods and Men, he says, the metal with its unique properties was needed back home for a vital need. As best as we can make out, this vital need could have been for suspending the gold particles in Nibiru's waning atmosphere and thus shield it from critical dissipation. It's, it's just, it's science fiction. <laughs> as best as we can make out, who's we? None of this is explained. Uh, the Sumerians aren't the only culture that gets the ancient astronaut treatment. There are hundreds of other claims, which have also been debunked over and over from every corner of the globe. Sites with megalithic structures like the Nazca Lines in Peru, huge pictures that can only be seen you know, from the sky fully. Uh, the monolithic stones of Baalbek and Lebanon, Stonehenge, uh, the pyramids of Egypt, Easter Islands, big stone heads, stuff we went over earlier, all have extraterrestrial explanations. So in conclusion here, ancient astronaut theory is fun. Right? It's exciting. I get, I get the appeal. It sounds awesome. But the claims that have been made on TV and books and throughout history are based on literally nothing but bad research by uneducated 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 researchers who are, who are actually not experts in those fields, mistranslations by people who don't even fucking know the languages they're claiming to translate from, and just lies, just outright lies. Most of what modern ancient astronaut theorists say about the ancient Sumerians and the Anunnaki being connected has been copied and pasted from Sitchin. And just about everything he wrote in his books is garbage especially the foundational principle that the Sumerians wrote of the Anunnaki as gods that came down in rocket ships. They did not write that. He did. And if you want to see the ancient mythologies or ancient aliens mythology uh, further debunked, I highly recommend you check out a three-hour YouTube video called Ancient Aliens Debunked, almost 9 million views. Thankfully, uh, way more likes than dislikes, which gives me hope for humanity. Posted by the YouTube channel Verse by Verse, it's so good and rational and thorough. It just debunks claim after claim after claim very calmly, calmly, uh, much less cursing than I do. Uh, there are some great quotes about ancient alien theory believers in the comment section, such as, when you don't know what you're talking about, everything is a mystery. Holy shit, is that true? <laughs> and ancient aliens, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. And I love this one so much. The greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. So yeah, there you go. All right, now let's circle back to some real Sumerian history. The Sumerian civilization, it was incredible. It started with the decision to grow some wheat, barley, other crops, already grown wild in a great river basin. And this area of abundant, fertile soil, fish, other game allowed early humans to stop hunting and gathering, start farming, create a surplus of food that allowed many to not have to farm. And those who didn't have to farm helped build walled cities to protect the citizens. Once protected, some of those citizens became scholars, learned how to write down a language, specialized their skills, build a government, build out a complex mythology. It all snowballed into becoming possibly the first civilization in history, if not the first, definitely one of the oldest. A shift towards farming and using irrigation unlike anyone before was displayed by the Sumerians. It allowed them to accomplish so many important firsts. Again, like the written language, mathematics, complex religious, moral, and legal structures, schools, literature, trade, technology. Their polytheistic uh, religious beliefs would set the stage for countless subsequent religious belief systems. It's very clear that there was an influence there in the creation of Abrahamic religions that so heavily influenced and shaped the rest of human history. 
And they also gave us a lot of fodder for people who want to make money off of the popularity of aliens. Aliens did not need to come down and teach our ancestors how to build amazing structures. I wish more people could understand that. Structures like the pyramids were not built overnight. I think that's where some people get hung up. It's like, well, we couldn't like, build that quickly. Yeah, but we would never try to launch a building project now that would take hundreds of years, right? Because people want to make money off of it and they need to make money off it in their lifetime for it to be worthwhile for them. You know, smart early humans. Oh man, I cannot stop. I have so much indigestion. I don't know what's going on. It just won't stop. Uh, smart early humans slowly figured out how to build bigger and more impressive structures slowly over hundreds of years through trial and error, through learning from previous generations, through writing notes to help later generations, and honestly, through rulers who really didn't give a shit about their people when they forced slaves to work their whole lives, in some cases to build shit, or you know, uh, they, had the, they had the money from taxing their people to build, to pay multiple generations, you know, thousands and thousands of people to, to build these projects. You know, a huge crew, an unlimited budget, a lot of time can allow you to build great massive monuments which, with much less advanced tools than we have today. There's, there's no mystery. And the things we build now are cooler in many respects. It's like, yeah, we're not building these massive stone pyramids. We are building these massive skyscrapers that are so much more technologically advanced and more useful than these old buildings that didn't have much interior space that look impressive, stand the test of time, but you wouldn't want to fucking live in one. Uh, so there's, there's no mystery, but there is so much to be marveled at. Marvel at the human ingenuity it took, in addition to being in a place with lots of great natural resources, to pull humanity out of a hunter-gatherer society into civilization. And again, just understand like Rome, the, you know, these places, these civilizations, they were not built in a day. It wasn't picking berries one day to stay alive. And then the next day you got a big walled city and you're building a massive temple. Slow and steady for a long time, which is, you know, much more boring than aliens coming down and be like, here you go. Get going on those big old stone heads, motherfuckers. I want to see some progress. Now I got to get out of here before some people from England or something see me. Ah, and again, aliens can be real, just not Sitchin's and Von Daniken's version of aliens. Let us now recap. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Sumerians were first at so many things. In all likelihood, farming, math, writing, taxes. They gave us the wheel, the plow, a fleshed out concept of time. So much. Number two, the Epic of Gilgamesh may have influenced the Bible. Also, it is thought by many that there is an unknown text that may have inspired both the Sumerians and the ancient Hebrews. Number three, ancient astronaut theorists. Fuck me. Built on so much bullshit. Eric von Daniken, Zechariah Sitchin, built a theory now accepted or at least considered by millions to be true of aliens visiting in the past, giving early humans technology, allowing them to build civilizations, maybe make some big stone heads, and it's, it's built on nonsense. Uh, number four, it's interesting just how many religions popped out of the Mesopotamian region during and after the Sumerians' reign. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, also uh, Zoro, Zoroastrianism, and all the various forms of polytheism in the vein of the Sumerian pantheon, like the Greek and Ro Roman religions. Number five, new info, there's a fairly recent culty pseudo-religion that has incorporated ancient astronaut theory into its core tenets. So that's awesome. We're getting a religion built on this, the Raelian cult. Oh boy. Uh, Raelism also known as Raelianism, is a UFO religion that was founded in the 1970s in France by Claude Vor, uh, Vorlhan, uh, now known as Rail. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, sometimes called intelligent design for atheists. Uh, we'll probably suck it one day. Right now, just a little preview. 
The Raelians call themselves an organization, but are often referred to as a cult or even a space alien cult, according to the president of the North American Raelians. They have about 130,000 members in more than 80 countries. Dear God. They are patiently waiting for the return of humanity's creators. They're, they're waiting for the return of the Anunnaki, who they call the Elohim, which is also a Hebrew word for God. Uh, they believe the Sitchin lie that humans were created in an alien laboratory. Uh, their prophet, Rail, a former French journalist and race car driver named Claude Vorlhan, uh, had his own alien encounter over 40 years ago and then founded a religion devoted, he says, to science and also to pleasure, but mostly just to, to aliens and pleasure. Uh, alien sex cult. Raelians are sexually liberated, which has likely helped them recruit new members all over the globe. Like any good cult, they're controversial. They claimed years ago that they successfully cloned human babies. They didn't. Uh, Thomas Kanzig, president of the U.S. Raelian movement, told Mystery Wire, it's really important to clarify that the Raelian movement is not cloning. Rail, as leader of the Raelian movement, he initiated the cloning project, but it was handed over to Raelian Bridget Bosselier in the late 90s, and it became independent. No, it didn't. It's all nonsense. Uh, another one of the controversies surrounding the group is their use of the swastika, an ancient symbol of peace adopted by the Nazis. The Raelian symbol shows the swastika inside the Star of David, so maybe not the best call. Uh, central goal for the Raelians is the creation of an embassy near Jerusalem to welcome back the Elohim, the Anunnaki, their protective race of space aliens. They believe that there have been 40 Elohim human hybrid prophets that have been sent to Earth to set the stage for the return of the Elohim, the Anunnaki, which include the Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, and of course, Rael himself, you know, the new guy. These beings who are 25,000 years ahead of us, they could come here at any moment, Kanzig says, but they're so respectful. And I think that there's a lot of teaching that is so respectful. And they say, if you want to welcome us, we will come. If you don't want to, we will not come. They could destroy the planet. They could move around the whole solar system if they want. They could appear anywhere in time. But they say, we come if you build an embassy for us. So the embassy is like the sign that humanity's ready because they don't want to impose themselves on us. What the fuck is wrong with people? Uh, the Raleigh North American headquarters is in Las Vegas, which feels right for some reason. And, and the world and worldwide uh, headquarters is in Geneva, Switzerland. Fucking wackadoodle ideas, man. Once they get out there, some of them, they just take hold. And then no matter how painfully dumb they are, they just keep growing and spreading. <laughs> makes me, honestly, makes me sad in moments for just huge portions of humanity. Uh, let's hope there are always more of us who do not believe this kind of shit than those of us uh, who do. That that still seems to be the case based on that debunked video. Uh, thank God. Sometimes I wonder how much longer it'll be the case. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The ancient astronauts slash ancient Sumerians episode has been sucked. Holy shit. That suck was a bitch to put together. I hope it was entertaining. I It wasn't from lack of effort. I will promise you that I easily, I spent so much extra time. It's just, man, when, when, you, when you get into these wackadoodle wormholes, it's just like, you feel like you're going crazy. It's like, what, what is real? What is, what is real? And, and I just default to this thing of like, okay, if all of the academic community, all the people from the best schools in the world where the professors have dedicated their fucking lives and built off the knowledge of previous people in this one area, if like all of them agree on A, and then a, a different group of people are like, nope, B, and all the different group of people ha have none of the education and are not respected in that field at all. I gotta go with A. And that doesn't make me uh, believe that like all professors are just, they know everything more than anyone else. I hope it never comes across that way. But, but I also like, if you don't respect expertise, then society fucking collapses. 
which is kind of ironic in a way to be pointing out right now, like talking about like the building of the civilization. It's like, yeah, a lot of our, what we like about civilization will crumble. If we're like, now the experts don't know anything. It's like, you know, like the scholars in, you know, ancient Sumerian culture wrote all of their, wrote all of their cuneiforms. Of course they did. They didn't just let fucking Johnny Farmer, like, hey, I I need you to knock out a couple clay tablets of cuneiforms. You know, and some guy's like, I don't know how to do that. That doesn't fucking matter. That doesn't matter. Sitchin, he he will later translate this and he doesn't know what any of it means. So who fucking cares? Just make chisels and we'll call it a language. Like that's basically what a lot of these people are kind of asking you to do with your beliefs. Who fucking cares that I didn't study with anybody that actually knows something about this? I thought about it and I read a lot of books written by other people who are just as fucking dumb as me. So you should believe it. That's what the wackadoodle mythology is built on. It's just centuries of idiots writing books that are sexy that have interesting, fantastical thoughts that would be great as sci-fi, but they're presented as fact. And then the next generation, another group of fucking idiots sees that idiocy and they're like, ah, and they use it as like a bibliography. No, I'm basing, I've, listen, I'm knowledgeable. I've read a lot of stuff. You read a lot of garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. It's so frustrating. And fuck you, History Channel. Fuck you as a network. Just change your name, you fucking pieces of shit. Because you, you promote this nonsense. Ah, it drives me fucking crazy. I hate the History Channel. Fuck all the execs there. Yeah, seriously, seriously fuck that network. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Uh, <laughs> switch gears to gratitude now. Uh, <laughs> Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Zach, the script keeper, Flannery for running point on this week's research. Uh, Bit Elixir for continuously refining the Time Suck app. Logan, the art warlock, Keith, running badmagicmerch.com. Uh, being the visual artist for all things Bad Magic. Working on our socials along with Liz Hernandez, who runs the uh, Cult of the Curious Facebook private page, along with our all seeing eyes. Thanks to, also to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad over on Discord. Now, you can link to Discord through the Time Suck app. Next week on Time Suck, we are going back to the world of cult, 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 because apparently I haven't, ha- I haven't had enough insanity in my head. Uh, we're going to go to the Aggressive Christian Mission Training Corps cult. This relatively low-profile cult would start up in 1981 in Sacramento under the name Free Love Ministries when a former cult member alleged that she'd been forced by the group to beat her infant children, do heavy labor, and live in a shed, the group packed up and headed northwest. Eventually settling in southern New Mexico. And uh, so they didn't, you know, didn't stay in the northwest. They went, they went back down. Uh, ha- having rebranded as the Aggressive Christian Mission Training Corps. And they were aggressive. Uh, run by cult leader Deborah Green, who called herself the general, the ACMTC, distributed leaflets produced radio shows, wandered around town in the military get-ups professing about how God's army needed to uh, fight the demons. They took their name and tactics from a book called Aggressive Christianity by Catherine Booth, Booth, the co-founder of the Salvation Army. Interesting. The ACMTC would go relatively undetected until 2017 when investigators arrested Deborah Green and her fellow high-ranking cult members on a litany of charges, including hundreds of child abuse and molestation charges. Luckily, some members, including Deborah's own daughter, would manage to escape the cult. We'll cover that as well. Uh, for everything you ever wanted to know about the aggressive Christian mission training court cult and the insanity of Deborah Green, tune in next week on Time Suck. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Let's, uh, let's comedic things up with the Cummins Law victim message. Always fun to kick things off with some comedy in the updates. Uh, loyal Sucker Brett writes, damn it, Dan. I was just listening to The Vampire of Dusseldorf Suck on my Bluetooth headphones as I was finishing up work the other day. Kept listening on my drive home. I had to stop and grab some groceries on my way home and didn't realize that when my car shut off, the podcast reconnected to my headphones and kept playing. 
I can't hear my headphones unless they're in my ears. So I never realized I was walking around the store <laughs> with the suck playing in the background. While I was waiting in the checkout line, the batteries in my headphones died and on full blast through my phone speaker now came, if it has four legs, is it human and has a butthole, I'm going to figure out how to stick my dick in it. <laughs> I fumbled around. <laughs> I fumbled around trying to press pause before anything else disturbing came out of your mouth. The lady in front of me looked back at me, horrified and, conf <laughs> and confused. Everyone within earshot turned to see what kind of monster they were in the presence of. I damn near left my groceries in the cart and just walked out of the store. That was by far the most awkward, silent interaction I have ever had with a grocery store cashier. <laughs> From now on, I will always make sure the suck is paused and I'm out in public. Anyway, thought you might get a laugh out of my misfortune. I love the suck. Wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars. Sorry, not sorry for the long message. Loyal sucker, Brett. Oh my God, that's one of the best ones I've heard in a while, Brett. That was like... I mean, there's a lot of crazy shit I said in that episode, but that was like one of the worst lines they could just jump in on. Oh man, I'm just picturing that. I pictured that so clearly in my mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I would wonder about someone if I wasn't doing these podcasts, if I heard that next to me in the grocery store line. Uh, that was so fun. Let's do it again. Uh, now for another Cummins Law victim. Definitely not a murdering meat sack, for sure. Heather writes, hello, you beautiful bastard, horsecock, queen of the suck, and the rest of the crew. I had to pull over and share the hilarious Cummins law that happened to me while listening to the vampire of Dusseldorf suck. <laughs> I'm a youth counselor at a residential detention treatment facility for troubled teens. Needless to say, I work long hours. I don't get off work until 11 p.m. or later, depending on how the day goes. And thank you for doing that work, by the way. It's such important work. Working 14-hour shifts a lot, I'll run to the gas station after work while listening to the suck to unwind. Being so late, I'm normally the only one there, so I don't bother to turn down the radio and leave the window cracked. Uh, and I leave the window cracked while I'm pumping gas so I can keep listening. Tonight was no exception. So when I pulled up and sat in the car for a few minutes before getting out to fill the tank, uh, I, uh, I waited for another car to pull up. Now, if you've ever left your stereo blasting while in the covered area of the pumps, you know it amplifies everything. The podcast is no exception. I sat in the car for a good five minutes or more before getting out to pump, leaving the podcast playing as usual. It's about 43 minutes or so in, we started talking about his uh, early rapey crimes. I got out to start pumping gas. So I noticed that the person hadn't uh, uh, noticed a person hadn't moved out of their car. When I glanced around the pump at him, they were staring straight forward with their hands on the wheel. I couldn't help but laugh, thinking this poor bastard is thinking he just walked into some backwoods horror film with some multicolored-haired, all-black horror T-shirt wearing murder-listing weirdo. To give you a visual, I'm in a gas station on a native reservation, so it's surrounded by woods and trees in a very country area. People have been known to disappear on the res reservation at night in the past. Although not embarrassing like your normal Cummins laws, I'm sure it scared the bejesus out of him and I'll have something to go back and tell his friends about. So I like that you, uh, yeah, you just didn't know how long this person was listening to you blast this from your car. Probably several minutes. One final note for your convenience. My last name is pronounced uh, Don, Don Yalevich. Don, Don Yalevich. Don Yalevich. Don Yalevich. Oh yeah, it's a crazy spelling. Keep on sucking. Heather Don Yalevich. And her name is, uh, like it's like Danielle, but then E-W-I-C-H. Uh, well, Heather, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and that'd be another one. Like if I wasn't really familiar with podcasts, that would be odd. If you just pull up in a lonely gas station behind somebody, like waiting for the pump, they don't notice you're there and you're just blasting some horrific murder talk. Yeah, they might've been pretty uncomfortable. Uh, now let's talk about Whipple. My Whipple ads may have cost the following marvelous meat sack or may cost the following marvelous meat sack his job one of these days. Hank writes, Dear Master Sucks a Lot, All hail Triple M, I bow to you, Lucifina, for I'm not worthy, and good boy Bojangles. 
I'm writing to you today hoping that the other agent I am working with is not a fellow cult member. I'm doing a deal with a very professional agent whose last name is Whipple. And thanks to you, every single time I have to say her name, I can't do it without putting on my cutoff Cobra Kai t-shirt, pit vipers, black waffle stompers, and cutoff jean shorts while going into a rage about fucking your feelings while jumping off the hood of my truck, jamming on an air machine gun, all while flexing my 22-inch pythons while my pyrotech blows up your aunt's house while she is knitting a very, very scratchy sweater. May Mr. Kittens rest in pieces. Fuck Whipple, just did it again. Fuck your feelings. Not sorry about the long email with too much detail. Whipple, Hank. Hank, that just cracked me up. <laughs> thank you for thank you for sharing that. And uh, you know, just one more. Today my brain is fucking fried, but I want to get this out. Uh, this is a correction I got from multiple meat sacks. Uh, I got a lot of throttle messages this past week. Dear King of the Suck, uh, writes Roxanne. <laughs> Uh, I just listened to your Vampire of Dusseldorf episode, and while I laugh my ass off like a crazy person while I listen to work, I just wanted to let you know that throttle, that to throttle a person means to strangle them by either the use of your hands or by use of a rope, according to the dictionary. Just an FYI, keep up the great work. Also, have you heard about Princess Olga of Russia? She was a total badass. Look up how she took revenge on the man who killed her husband. Roxanne, if you can sing my name like Eddie Murphy, go for it, LOL. Roxanne, you don't have to put out the red light. I don't remember how. I do exactly. I just remember it's real high. Uh, P.S. Seriously thinking about renaming one of my cats Whipple. <laughs> uh, well, uh, thank you for that correction. I I appreciate that. Um, Roxanne. And yes, I got that from a lot of people. I just, for some reason in my head, my dad used to say that term. Like, I'll throttle you. And I, and I thought it was like a punchy thing. And I was so convinced of that that it didn't even occur to me to look it up. But, you know, I, I assumed. I made an ass out of, you know, uh, you and me. Um, mostly me. So yes, I did get a lot of throttle messages and I do know now that it works for, uh, that it means like choking. And I just never saw it in like, uh, um, like, uh, in a criminal profile that way, like in American, you know, like, uh, evidence or whatever about some, or, you know, a description of some American killer strangling somebody. Yeah. It's always like strangle, strangle, strangulation, choke, but never throttle. So now I know. And now those of you who maybe didn't know before, probably not that many of you, you also know. And now I'm also getting out of here. The Sumerians and ancient astronauts have melted me brain. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Uh, please don't try and convince any friends, family, or even strangers that aliens made the Sumerians or built pyramids or any of the other ancient astronaut silliness this week. Just, uh, if you're going to watch that show, just have a good laugh. Uh, please try to keep people to keep on sucking instead. Um, yeah, uh, uh, David Childers here. Uh, I, I just want to say I was a little surprised you didn't bring me in for the end of the episode. I, I really feel like, uh, given the time, that I really could explain a, a lot of the questions you seem to have uh, about all of this. I, I've done heavy uh, research. Hey, hey, David. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what, what, what was the explanation you have have for this? Hey, D David, I just didn't bring you in uh, any more than I did because you're a fucking moron. Uh, wow. Okay. Well, that's that's harsh. Can I say? Can I say one more thing? Just one more thing uh, before I do go. Yeah, sure. Just say one more thing. Uh, go Grizz. Uh, go Grizz. Uh, okay.